is Steve, and we are here today for another Friday conversation with some friends. So I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, Epic, you want to kick us off? Tell us about you and your channel. The name's Epic, Epic Tales. Uh, you should check out my channel. It's a fun channel to watch. And um, yeah, I've been so excited to get on this live stream and talk today with the Critical Dragon. And yes, I have so much questions to to ask, and I've been watching some of his videos, and I'm just, I just, I have so many questions, and I want to like pick his brain and see, see how um, narrative specifically works. And AP, you want to tell us about you and your experience in your channel? Um, hi, I'm AP. My my channel is a Critical Dragon, where uh, if you watch any of my videos, I I start them all with saying, and I talk about narrative in film, television, and in books because. I'm an, a recovering academic. Um, for my sins, I used to be an academic and then find a powerful need to actually eat and therefore had to get a job that would pay me. So um, I used to study narrative, I used to teach narrative. I used to study and, and teach literature and worked. Uh, I work as a freelance uh, developmental editor for science fiction and fantasy. But my channel is focused on talking about books, talking about stories, talking about how they're constructed. And I hope they're entertaining um, and occasionally educational, but your mileage may vary. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Taylor, you wanna tell us about you and your channel? Yeah, so I'm Taylor from the BookTube channel, Maybe Between the Pages. I always have it below in the name. Uh, yeah, basically my channel, I talk about books. I like books. <laughs> it's early. I need coffee. Sorry, but that's the gist of it. <laughs> uh, you can find me there if you want to connect with me. That's probably the best place. Awesome. So, AP, I'm so glad. So great. We're so grateful to have you to uh, to pick your brain and to ask a bunch of stories or a bunch of a bunch of uh, questions. So, my I'd like to kick us off with someone like me who isn't. I don't know the the ins and outs and the nuts and bolts, but. If you can describe what narrative is to someone like me who doesn't know a whole lot about it, how would you describe it to me? Well, typically, see, when we talk informally, we talk about, oh, uh, that was a really good story, or um, I really loved the plot. And the thing is, within narrative, the study of how these things are, are sort of formed, a narrative is made up of narrative events, so they're the things that happen, characters that people who are going through the things that happen, a, a setting and uh, those sorts of elements, then there's tone and atmosphere and all of that. But story would be the narrative events organized chronologically from beginning to end, which as you well know from lots of the books and films and TV shows that we enjoy, not every narrative is arranged that way. And plot are the narrative events as we encounter them in the narrative. So what I mean by narrative is basically what most of us mean when we talk about uh, a story, the thing that we are consuming, the the tale. And it's, it's just the word that we use because story has a specific meaning and plot has a specific meaning. And it helps us keep those different ways of thinking about it sort of separate in our heads. So that's that's all that narrative is. And then narratology, which sounds very fancy, but it's just a way of saying studying narrative. <laughs> it does sound very fancy. <laughs> and why why do we love telling stories? What what is it about storytelling that grips us the way it does? 
Well, everyone, we experience life in a lot of respects as a story where we are the central character of our story and we interact with everyone else's story. When we think of history, we don't think of history really as a sequence of dates. We think of what happened, the people that it happened to. We, where we narrativize so much in our lives. When someone says, oh, what happened last night? Oh, let me tell you what happened. So then, and they launch into a story about what happened. Narrative in a lot of ways is one of the things that joins us all together as a, a species. Hello. And uh, our friend, Mr. P.L. Stewart, author of P.L. Stewart, author of A Drone Kingdom is here to join us. Thanks for time, coming to hang out with us, P.L. I'm honored to, uh, can everyone hear me okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Honored to uh, be here. Hey, Epic Taylor and nice to meet you, AP. Oh, pleasure to meet you too. So like um, something I wanted to ask you, I can't imagine how many books you've read and um, just like what really goes into like understanding the structure of narrative or what works, what doesn't work and everything. Have you by any chance read uh, A Hero with a Face? Uh, Campbell's, Campbell's book. Uh, so The yes. Hero with a Thousand Faces. So he was essentially a folklorist and looked at a whole lot of folk tales and, and myths and those stories and went, if you take away everything that makes them unique, if you start looking at the structure of them, um, you come up with the hero's journey, a, a structuralist approach to the, the sort of the main story beats would be a way of kind of expressing it. Um, and, you know, structuralism is obviously one of the big modes or a big mode of, of literary analysis, of, of trying to distill down movements within a narrative. And we talk about narrative structures and you can talk about Freytag's pyramid. Um, you know, and most people are familiar with Freytag's pyramid. You know, you start with a, the introduction, the setting of a scene and setting up who your characters are. And then you have an instigating event. And then that leads to a rising action that builds to a climax. And then after the climax, you have the sort of the, the conclusion, the, the epic uh, finishing of the battle. And that leads to uh, the, the falling action and the sort of the repercussions of that. And then the denouement and you reestablish how the world is after it all started. And that pyramid shape is one of the narrative structures that we, we commonly recognize, particularly in a lot of Western storytelling. But it was a, a 19th century uh, German Bildungsroman uh, pattern. So that's so interesting. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. oh, that's so interesting that you mentioned that because that's one thing that's really stuck out to me as a a reader. Something I've discovered is when I branch outside of Western stories, uh, there's a completely different narrative structure. So uh, I've been reading a lot more translated Japanese fiction recently, and those stories took me a long time to really get a grasp on because there wasn't a rising or falling action per se. Uh, those books don't necessarily follow that narrative structure. I don't know what the name is. I'm sure there's a name for it, but there is. <laughs> but, yeah. And I've forgotten the name. And it, it I'm oh, sorry to put you on the spot there. Well, we can just say that structure <laughs> is something that I find really interesting to engage with because I grew up with that that pyramid 
structure. So it took an adjustment for me as a reader to to engage with a story like that. Uh, even though I, I wanted to, uh, I found myself feeling either bored at first or what's the point of this story? Like I don't see a an obvious moral or an obvious conflict. Uh, but then I learned a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of the points that those stories are to be there in the moment. It's it's about the the, the moment, not the future, <laughs> which is something that I, I really have had like a, a discovery the past year hmm. that... But one of the one of the big things about these story structures, because there are lots of different structures, is that they aren't prescriptive. They are descriptive. It, it's describing trends in and structures in narrative that we find. Because if you think think of the number of even like a, a police procedural show, it doesn't start with an introduction. It starts with the instigating event. Oh, look, the guy's dead. And the, the homicide detectives rock up. That's the instigating event before the introduction. And then you have, if you have an A plot, a B plot, and a C plot, which is very common in a lot of writing, you play around with the structures within that, that when they're interlinking. So if you think of the, the basic building blocks of writing being words, words build into sentences, sentences build into paragraphs, paragraphs build into scenes, scenes build into chapters. So you go, there's, there's a pattern, everything follows that. But these, these structures can have that same micro and macro expression because you can have a chapter following a, a scene setting initial couple of paragraphs where like how many books have you read where when you read a chapter, it opens with telling you what the physical scene is, what the landscape is. And then you find out in the next paragraph who the characters are. And then something happens that gives the character something to do. And then that builds to the climax of it. So you can imagine, particularly in fantasy, uh, a scene where people are in a wood. So you get the woods described and they're riding on this road. And then they suddenly realize they're being followed. And then there's a chase sequence. And then they crest the hill and they see the city in front of them and they ride to safety. End of chapter. And you go, that follows basically Freytag's pyramid, but it's just a way of describing what happens. It's not saying that any, every narrative has to follow this because there are loads of stories and loads of chapters which have completely different structures because you could end the scene on a cliffhanger, which is basically ending it mid scene because the next scene is going to resolve that cliffhanger. So that's not following the, the Freytag model, if you will. So it's, Understanding all of these different things, even if you think of uh, like a classic one, let's think of tragedy and comedy. Tragedy is a different way of thinking about it because the character usually starts off, their life is up here and it's great. And usually it, it goes up a bit and everything's going well and then it all goes horribly wrong. And it's kind of a sad face. It's the, the sad bit of the smiley face. But a comedy, classic comedy on the other hand, usually starts out with the, you know, the characters about here and things are going on, and then they start going badly and badly, and then suddenly everything goes really well and everything resolves in the end. And it's a happy face, it's a smiley face. And that, again, is another narrative structure. The three-act play, the five-act play, all of these are different structures that are routinely deployed in narrative. And, you know, PL could probably talk about this a lot more as an author, about employing different structures and techniques. 
Well, and and obviously, uh, thank you, AP. And Epic, another author in the room. I'd uh, love to hear what, what he has to say. Um, one thing, and, and this is so insightful, AP. I, I could listen to you all day long here. I'm even, I'm even scared to open my mouth. Um, <laughs> but uh, the one thing I've, I've learned as a writer is that, um, and, and Taylor, to Taylor's point, is that um, I've basically taken all the things I learned in school, in university, uh, with my background, medieval literature, and I've, I've tossed a lot of those things out, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, because, for example, I was having a really interesting discussion with some fellow uh, BOPC writers um, in, a, in a chat group, and we were just talking about how one element of, of a particular writing uh, literary style, a uh, show don't tell, that um, it doesn't work a lot for, it doesn't work as much sometimes for specifically BIOPC writers. And why is that? Because uh, for one thing, we just want to get our stories out there. And part of that's how we think. We just want to get the story out there because we're always feeling challenged that we're not going to have a voice to say certain things. So we end up sometimes telling, um, simply telling, because we want to get this, we feel our story needs to be told, right? And, and it's not to say that we're, that we aren't conscious of the need to uh, write a book where, you know, everything isn't, there isn't just tons and tons of exposition. And, you know, it, a lot of it is, is now that's cultural, right? So it, it's just funny how, you know, when, when I, especially when I hear a, a, a P talk and, you know, incredibly, incredibly smart man that, you know, you think about, I learned, especially as an indie author and a person of color that from my story, um, some of the literary conventions, the writing conventions, I felt I had to toss out and just write my story the way I thought it would best uh, come out. And, you know, um, obviously, you know, you're gonna, you're not going to be aware of how successful you are until after the story is published and you start getting feedback and reception. I mean, I'm talking about after beta readers, readers after editors, it's, it's really, you know, when readers get that finished product. Um, but yeah, I realized that um, a lot of the things that you, that I've learned there, you know, I've gotten some great advice over the years from various people who are a lot smarter than me about how to write a book and what writing a, a good book means. But I've also learned that, you know, some of the things that, uh, we've been taught as writers, especially if you've been formally trained as a writer, you've gone to, to, to writing classes, you know, I have friends that, you know, one of my friends has got an, an MA in creative writing and, and she says the same thing to me all the time. Like, you know, there's no right way to write a book, right? Um, yeah. You know, you, it, people, your readers will tell you whether or not you wrote a good book or not, right? Um, so absolutely, and like uh, there's something to 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 what you said there that I, I really really connect with about um, like intentionally tossing out some of the some of the some of the rules of writing that are like uh that are like official you know and it, it's it's the value of for me understanding those rules first is that if i'm going to toss them out i want it to be intentional because i'm trying to create a very specific effect and i i spoke with in the interview i had uh, recently with mike shell i spoke to him about it and he was talking about some of the editorial um like things that um, they wanted him to change like in his story structure and he was like he just couldn't do it like and he was um he was he 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 
like really sat down on his idea of being a self-published author because changing some things that he had intentionally done would have just changed the the the, the core or the essence of the story itself. And I think those those are absolutely brilliant and points that every author should pay attention to. When people talk about the rules of writing, someone please show me the legal tablet where this is inscribed <laughs> in stone that people must do something. Because every, every author I have ever worked with, every author I have ever spoken to, whether, whether they are self-taught, whether they have been formally taught, um, however they got to the point of being an author, knowing what the rule is and the effect it causes is the thing to know. It's not that you must obey the rule, but if you break the rule, you have to know what that effect causes. And about, I think the only binding or even general rule that I think ever applies to creative writing is what you do should best serve your narrative. And every narrative, despite comparisons to anything else, will always be unique to you. So you're finding your voice, your way to express it, and your way to communicate that to your reader. And all of none of the rules in the world will help you do that uh, if you just rigidly enforce them. You have to understand them. You have to understand why people thought that was a rule. Because you can create a wonderful, even if we took a very basic scenario of character A, male character A, female character B are a royal uh, heirs to the throne. They go off on an adventure and they go through a cave system, they climb a mountain, uh, defeat a dragon and come back. And the first author in telling this story, in, in expressing this narrative, Michael, right, well, I'm going to choose first person and I'm going to choose the male character as my first person perspective. And that will shape how they go through the narrative. The next author who gets this goes, well, I'm actually going, I'm going to do first person as well, but instead of first person past tense, I'm going to put it in first person present tense, and I'm going to use the female character as the point of view character. And suddenly you have two completely different narratives, even though the narrative events are the same and the characters are the same, because Character A, if it's focalized in a first person from their perspective, it's going to be their view of the world. Character B, it's going to be focalized through their perspective. And then the third author comes along and they choose thir uh, third person limited and they're going to alternate chapters according to POV. The fourth author comes along and they're going to do third person omniscient. Um, and each time that simple narrative of the two characters going on the same adventure. You will notice if you read all of them that they're all very, very similar. They're telling the same story, but how they are expressed is gonna be individual to that author and the choices they made simply with narrative perspective. And that is the power of understanding what it is that you do when you write knowing what those choices can mean, the ramifications that they have, and how that shapes the thing that you're putting on the page that you hope a reader is going to look at and fall in love and immerse themselves in your, your story. Hmm. This might be a little bit of a branch off, totally 
different topic. It's not totally different, but uh, just talking about the same story told from different perspectives or different narratives reminds me of the mythological stories that a lot of us are aware of. You know, a lot of cultures have the same origin stories. I believe most cultures, not all, but most cultures have a flood story, but it's told in completely different ways, depending on the perspective of the people who created that story. So even though right now we're talking about the narrative structure of current books, that's what immediately came to my mind, which actually connects to Steve's first question, which is why do we tell stories? Why do we love them? Right? It's the way of us interacting with the world. It's how we, it's how we understand things. So I, I think it all kind of comes full circle, you know, when you look at it at a large scale, when it comes to mythological or origin stories, it rings true even on that scale, what you just said. Hmm. And it was, you know, oh, sorry, sorry, Epic. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to like uh, refer to the comment section, but go ahead. Well, I, I was about to say it's, as, uh, as Taylor points out, like we've been telling stories from the beginning of time. It was uh, two cavemen sitting there going, did you hear what Ugg did last night? And that's that's what we have been doing the, the entire time that we've been on the planet. We've been making up stories about other people. And then we try to understand the world around us and we create narrative as a way to conceptualize it. You know, if you think, if you didn't understand how meteorological systems work, how weather works, it's, oh, there's, there's a magical being in the sky that can throw lightning bolts. And suddenly it gives you a way of understanding it. Narrative quite often is a way of simplifying or exploring complex ideas and and concepts. And uh, one of the things obviously that science fiction and fantasy do is it allows us to uh, remove them slightly from the real world and explore things actually that can be very difficult to explore in a real world uh, context. So deeply troubling aspects of our history, deeply troubling aspects of our politics, deeply troubling aspects of human behavior. When we place them in a science fictional world and explore it or a fantasy world and explore it, we're giving both ourselves and our readers that sort of uh, psychic barrier between them and the thing as a way to start thinking about it without knee-jerk reactions, without the uh, impulses that we have been trained either by culture or by politics or whatever thing that we have learned, that it gives us a chance to explore it in a new way outside of that. Like, and just like, just um, to, um, like narrowing down a little bit more on the point you're talking about, about how like in fantasy specifically, you're able to like talk about things that are um, difficult to talk about in real life, like for instance, Game of Thrones, and like uh, Game of Thrones in 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 um in, in, in it talks about topics of like incest and talks about um uh, like betrayal, all, all these things that like if you're it would be difficult to like talk about, and you can explore it from the perspective of like a brother and a sister who are in love. Like I still think it's gross, but like you get my point. Like it was in a setting where it is safe to um talk about it or explore um the idea itself and um just like it, getting into um a bit more you were talking about how people are um like influenced by like their, their politics and like their upbringing and everything and uh, me and uh 
uh, Taylor, we, we spoke a little bit about it before the, the live stream started, but you were talking about like some implicit uh, biases that you writers sometimes have in their writing. And I wanted to know specifically, right? Um, I, it's easy to say, okay, well, as a writer, you should be more self-aware so that like those kind of biases do not affect the quality of the, your narrative. But as a writer specifically, what can a writer do to, you know, um, to to be conscious of it and not fall into that trap? Well, obviously, every, A, every writer is different. B, uh, every writer should be exploring the thing that they want to explore. I don't think writing according to a checklist is ever going to help anyone. But when, when you think about it, let's say you're going to create a, a fantasy story and you go, I want a setting. I'm going to create a city. So I just need a city. And you imagine a city. And you imagined it like a, an ancient Greek city because uh, that's the image you have in your head of a, of a fantasy city. Why did you imagine ancient Greece? Oh, well, that, that's just what a fantasy city looks like. Well, why ancient Greece? Why did you pick ancient Greece as that? Why not um, uh, an ancient city in Nigeria? Why not an ancient city in China? Why not an ancient city somewhere else? Why does it even have to be an analog for somewhere in the real world? Uh, why not draw different things from different places? And you go, well, I'm not going to put people in this city. And, you know, this was, we had a spate of a lot of fantasy writing, which was pseudo-European medieval history, where everyone was white, apart from an orientalized other character who came in. And you go, well, why was that? Oh, well, the European Middle Ages, everyone was white. And you go, not according to the archaeological evidence and not according to the actual histories, that Europe was much more diverse from that. But there was a, a popular image of it that everyone was white. So all of these fantasy stories, everyone was white. And no one batted an eyelid because, oh, it's a fantasy world. It's kind of like medieval Europe. And we all think of medieval Europe as being white. And no one thought about it. But if you're in control of creating that world, then why would you put just one ethnicity in it? And you could have a very, very good reason for it, but it's being aware of your reason is the important thing. If you're going to have, oh, well, I want to have this character fall in love. Is it heteronormative? Have you assumed that everyone in your world is heterosexual? Why would everyone in your world be heterosexual? Um, I'm going to make this character do X. The types of behavior that we think of as normal, and this is where our own personal backgrounds, where we live, where we grew up, what time period we grew up in, our personal politics, the, the socioeconomic groups we're part of, all of these things feed into our perception of what is normal. And if we replicate that as a base norm into a fantasy setting, we are replicating what we assume is normal. But obviously our readers are from completely different backgrounds. And when they read that, they're not going to necessarily read it as normal because their normal might be different to my normal. And so with fantasy and science fiction in particular, authors have this incredible opportunity to create a world, to play with the very constants that we assume are universal. So uh, if you have a kingdom, why is it called a kingdom? make it matrilineal and it's called a queendom 
And people go, oh, well, you're just putting that in to go blah, blah, blah. You go, but if it's matrilineal, then it makes sense that no one thought of it ever as a kingdom, that they would have thought of it as a queendom or invent a fantasy world for it. Why would, why would this realm be matrilineal? You go, ah, because in its history, there were so many civil wars fought because there were all of these pretenders to the throne. Whereas if we know who the mother is, we can guarantee we know who the child is because it's going to run down through the, the female line. Whereas there might, she might have had an affair with someone. You don't know 100% who the father is. So that history, a violent history of civil wars could explain why this particular um, monarchy became matrilineal. And suddenly that adds a depth and a verisimilitude and a mimesis to your world. It makes it easier to believe in, more authentic, easier to suspend your disbelief because there's a rationale, there's a logic. And you go, right, and if a queen is always in charge, what ramifications would that have? Would we still have the same structural sexism where wisdom is associated with the wise old man? If it's always a queen, would we not now flip that? And if we flip that to now, wisdom is going to be associated with a, a an older woman. How does that change what the archetype is going to be? How is that going to change the dynamics? Is it? Am I going to play with this? And by altering and playing with supposed universal norms, you can actually generate incredibly intricate and fascinating story worlds. The ramifications of changing just one thing can ripple through the entirety of it to give you this entire palette of choices about your world and your story and what you want to tell and make it individual all by altering just maybe one little tiny thing and thinking about how that might actually change the world. I want to read that book. Wait, the book you just described. Someone write that. I'm I'm in I'm here for it. Yeah, like, that, yeah that, that's that's and it's funny that I feel that um typically um writers today when approaching um when making an attempt to make their stories rich, culturally, ethnically, religiously diverse, you know, re having representation, uh, marginalized people, people of all different backgrounds, you know, customs, etc. You know, I feel that there's there's typically one of two approaches, the categories that you tend to f fall into. I love a I love AP's, um, you know, uh, what AP said about about the uh, the aspect of simply making it organic so as in the real world naturally there's people who you know um you know are are uh, identify as 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 being lgbtqa plus there's people of different cultures colors races etc religions and having that as being very unnatural and um you know uh, versus uh, i think especially for a lot of marginalized writers um to draw attention to the fact that um, you know, the world is a place, unfortunately, that, you know, has lots of positive things, but also has bigotry, you know, racism, uh, persecution against people of different, uh, you know, uh, sexual preferences, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and approaching it from, from dealing with the problems that we have with that, you know, natural, organic way that, you know, that a AP spoke about. So I think you, you'll find 
a lot of times it's it's one or the other. You'll you'll read a book where you know, of course, the main character is 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 gay or bisexual, and that's and because that is reality, and there's nothing wrong with it, and it's just part of the narrative, right? And you know, the 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 head of state is a queen. That's just part of the narrative. It's natural. Versus um, authors who who address um, you know, and compared to you know our real world, where unfortunately, you know, in 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 some with some people and in some places in the world and in some you know uh, you know unique uh, groups uh, within the world, uh, that would be an issue. So, um, you know, I know for someone like me, of course, um, I approach it from the aspect of, you know, hey, we have some problems, uh, Houston, and you know, um, these are some of the things that our world, our humankind, has grappled with. And struggled with, you know, for centuries, and we still haven't gotten it right. So, you know, that's why uh, in in my books, it's much more in your face. Uh, it's much more, you know, it's much more overt in terms of there's racism, there's sexism, there's homophobia, there's colonialism, there's all these issues, um, you know. But but I do enjoy reading books where, uh, again, you know, there's it's not there's an absence of issues, but those issues are not pointed out to the same degree. Um, you know, there's other poignant things going on, but 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 those aren't one of them. So I enjoy both because I think we need both. I think we need both types of books. Um, you know, where our societal issues are laid bare uh, for all to see, and that because obviously uh, we need some help as humans to go through these things. And I also love the and it's not a utopian, you know. Uh, you know, like, oh my gosh, everybody gets along and everybody's happy and this is just, you know, kumbaya. It's it's about, um, I think we all want to envision a time where, um, or place um, analogous to our world uh, that 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 these things are not an issue, right? Because I think as human beings, that's what we're all striving for, right? We're striving yeah. for that. We want to get to that place. We feel that we're en route. We feel that it's a journey, an evolution towards that. But you know, hopefully we get there one day. Yeah, and and you so eloquently pointed out that again, like as I said in the end, this is not meant to be prescriptive because there are so many different stories, there's so many different ways of telling stories, and having a world that replicates a lot of these assumed base norms and challenging them with the narrative, with characters within the narrative who are fighting against that. That's a very overt, brilliant way to bring it to the fore. And it is, it's very different to what I was just describing by trying to create something different by envisaging changing the base norm to see how that ripples out. And it's there are just different ways of trying to find the the best way to communicate your narrative. What is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to tell? And even at the, the beginning, pointing out that, you know, show don't tell works for as a general rule for X, but every novel is always moving between show and tell. You, you will never find an, well, I don't think you will ever find an entire novel length work that is only ever show. There will always be elements of tell. And it's playing with the techniques. It's understanding how the technique works. And one, I think one of the, the reasons that show don't tell is emphasized, particularly in, in writing workshops, is because a lot of beginning authors tell so much that they leave nothing up to the reader and 
trimming that away to give a reader the room to immerse themselves, to engage themselves instead of being dictated to is one of the reasons I think that rule gets talked about so much. But uh, as everyone knows, there are always styles of stories where someone tells you a story, the, the, uh, the oral tradition, even mimicking aspects of that, the stories that we tell each other about what happened last night or our friends and what they did those fall very much into tell forms and they're very natural forms. They're very easy forms to listen to and, and to accept. And so knowing that, knowing how you play with it is exactly the point. It's not that you must never tell, you must only show. It's knowing what showing does. It's knowing what telling does. And as we said at the very beginning, it's when you break those rules or when you change those rules, knowing what that effect is, and because you know it and you can deploy it when you want, you are trying to essentially manipulate your reader. Because let's face it, authors are all liars, very pretty and talented liars, but you're all liars. <laughs> we are. That actually, that actually connects to something that Epic had mentioned, I think, in our previous live we did last at the Friday Conversations. You were talking about how you wanted to create a narrative where you were co-creating with the reader and not just you know, telling them what they should think about your story. Uh, that really seems to connect to what AP just said. And as a reader, it's interesting. I've had moments where I've thought, oh, I'm glad that the author trusts me here. It's a weird word to use, but I've actually had the thought, like the author is trusting me to connect A to B. And as a reader, that's a wonderful experience to not feel like you're just being you know, talked to. So. Yeah, I've I've experienced both ends of the spectrum, and as a reader, when I'm like uh, consuming a book, I I enjoy it a bit more when I am figuring things out for myself, and then maybe later on get a confirmation if I was right or wrong, and that like if if I'm following a book enough to keep up with the story that the the writer is telling, even if it's not like spoon feeding me all the information himself, then it's a different depth of engagement that I am experiencing. But then, you know, then you read a book like The First Law, you read a book like Beyond Redemption, where I feel like they do a lot of telling, especially in terms of like the interiority of what's going on in a character's mind. And you're like, wow, that was well, really well done. I've seen the, I've experienced the effect and I like it. And then you read a book like, um, you read a book like uh, Blood Song where it's it's um everything is 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 only through the the is only through dialogue and through the actions of the of the main character that um you you know anything about them and it is very very effectively done as well so at like at it just goes back to the same thing if you're going to do something like on your writing just make sure it's intentional yeah I, I just so appreciate um, the fact that every writer could write something completely different and have their own unique audience that loves that work. And I always talk about this, you know, I see peeking back over AP shoulder. I believe it's uh, to write Hell's Chasm by Jenny Wirtz. I think it's one of my, one of, one of, you know, if not my, my favorite author and someone who I consider a friend. And um, that for me is the greatest standalone book I've ever read today. Uh, you know, Steve and I were privileged enough to have Jenny on 
a previous episode of Page Chewing. Actually, I was speaking to her earlier, and um, I, you know, Jenny writes with a richness of language that I believe is unparalleled. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I've, I'm old now. I've read a lot of books, and you know, I've read a lot of fancy books, and you know, some of my favorite authors, the GRMs, and et cetera. But Jenny Wirtz does something with language that um, I have not found. Um, you know, anywhere else um, in terms of, of, of literature. And, and, and I say that as the highest compliment, right? But I can read a book like Jenny's that is so completely, um, you know, intricate in terms of language. And so it, it's, it's beyond lyric or, or poetical. It's the way she plays with words and it's the deeper meanings and the, the nuances and the layers in what she does. And then I can read, you know, uh, something like, um, you know, I, I started to read, I just glanced at a, at a Will White a book the other day again a, a great a, i've never and i've never read his stuff i just i had it i picked it up i started taking a few a few reads and you know great writer but a totally different kind of book will write to, uh, as an indie author is a new york times best-selling author that's no small feat but to be able to appreciate two so very different books so different books written in such a such a vast a drastically uh different style and to be able to love and appreciate them both that's what I, I love about literature. I remember in school, another one of those, uh, you know, writing rules, don't write first person, it's weak writing. You know what I mean? So many of my favorite books are, you know, my, some of my favorite authors, Bernard Cornwell, et cetera, all first person, right? These are international best-selling books. And, you know, so so I think to to AP's point, to, to Epic's point, Taylor's point, I mean, I think it's just, you know, if you write effectively, people are gonna love your books, regardless of what narrative perspective you use, regardless of how intricate, your prose is versus a lighter touch, you know, whether it's character driven, whether it's plot driven, if your book is good, people are going to like, like and read it, right? And I think that's what we have, as authors are all striving for in our own unique ways. We're striving for that audience that's going to appreciate and like our, our narrative voice, right? It takes a while to gain that voice as an author. You don't get it after book one, you know, you might not get book three, but eventually, typically, you develop it, and uh, yeah, that's 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 one of the things I enjoy the most about about being an author and a reader. And and it's one of those things. Like, as, as a reader, you want to find those authors that you know. Oh, it's the latest book by so and so. Well, that's a must buy because no matter what they do, I know I'm going to enjoy it. And then you have authors who are chameleon like that. They they change their styles and their approaches. Um. And one of the most fascinating things, uh, talking about playing with language, uh, one of the things I, I studied uh, back at university when 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 I was young, it, it did happen once. Um, I feel you, AP, I feel you. <laughs> but we studied Anglo-Irish literature, which uh, is more commonly called now uh, Irish literature in English uh, to avoid the Anglo-Irish label. But it was a lot of the Irish authors who were writing in English and uh, there, there's a concept in uh, colonial theory uh, about adopt, adapt, adept. And, and this idea of you, the dominant culture comes in and conquers and they go, this is what you do. So you adopt it and uh, then you, you kind of get it and fit it with what you're doing and you become good at it. And then you go, right, now I'm going to manipulate it and do what I want to do with it. And uh, let's play around with it. And some of the, the Anglo-Irish authors 
were so aware of the use of the English language. And I think it was in Murphy. And he, uh, the line is something like, and Murphy walked into a mew, M-E-W. And the word in English is obviously muse, M-E-W-S. It's a plural. And it comes from the fact that that's stables, because that was one of the words for a set of stables, multiple stables. But it now means a passageway. And so the word gets changed. He deliberately changes it and removes the pluralization because it's one street. And it's that awareness, that ability as someone who is looking at it and going, no, I'm going to play with the, the language. And we can have authors who write beautiful, lyrical, poetic prose. Uh, Guy Gavriel Kay, a lot of his work has wonderful, rich, poetic prose. Then we can have authors like uh, Stephen Erickson, who it's less lyrical, but he's still using the same poetic devices. You have authors like Robin Hobb and Johnny Wirtz, again, very aware of the language that they are using. And then you'll have other authors who go, no, I want very clean, clear, transparent, to the point language. I want to make this as accessible at the, the lowest entry level possible into literacy to get my story across. I want all of that in it. And they have a different style. And not any of these are, this is good, that is bad. It all depends on the narrative, the intention of the author, the style of narrative that they're talking about, the, the intended audience, who they are speaking to. All of these things play into it. And we can love straightforward, bare prose. We can love beautifully embellished prose. We can love intricate, complex, dense prose. But if you had really dense prose and you go, it doesn't really fit with this story. And sometimes we get that feeling as well, that the, the style isn't matching the narrative or it's not matching our, our expectation and that affects how we read. Something I also think is important as a reader is to make sure you're reading different styles. Like, I don't know if you can tell, but I like Brandon Sanderson, surprise, okay? But, <laughs> but his style is very straightforward to reach as many people as possible, very clean, very crisp kind of writing. But I actually just recently read A Drowned Kingdom by PL, and uh, I filmed a, uh, a wrap-up where I'm going to talk about this, but uh, I did say that there's a lot of SAT words in that book. <laughs> like you will not find the same adjective used twice. And I mean that in a really good way. It was refreshing for me as a reader to see, I actually had to look up a word or two when I was reading and it had been a while since I'd had that experience in fantasy. So even though reading something like Brandon Sanderson is easy to pick up, I, I think it's important for readers to try to read other styles, to challenge themselves in that way. Uh, another example you gave was Robin Hobb. I don't know how to describe the way her writing makes me feel. It's just her sentences are cozy. I don't know any other way to describe that. I'll read a sentence and it won't be in a cozy setting, but I'll feel like, oh, those words sounded nice together next to each other. <laughs> and it's, it's not describing anything that warrants that feeling, but the words themselves make me feel that way. So, you know, it's just important to to make sure that you have different aspects of, of writing that you're you're engaging with, that you're playing with, you know, as an author or not just as an author, but as a reader as well. And, and to your point about reading widely, reading widely within the genre is good. 
reading other genres is even better. And reading other genres from other time periods, that's that's best of all, because there are so many times I hear uh, people new, potentially new to the genre or who are, who are writing and they go, I've never seen this done before. And I go, well, I can point out a couple of books from the early 20th century that do it. And it's a lack of awareness that like a lot of this stuff has been done or it's this book shouldn't do this. And you go, well, why not? Well, that's not how, how stories should be told. No, funnily enough, I, I know a couple of examples of that working in highly successful books, just not as commonly in fantasy. And when we see these books from other time periods, other cultures, other genres, they explore techniques and ways of writing and ways of expressing themselves that challenge us, that make us grow as readers, expand our vocabularies, expand our knowledge of uh, what happens in a story. And they are the best education. As much as I would love everyone to go to university and study English literature because it's my passion, the best education is reading widely and looking at all of those stories. And it, it is such an amazing experience to see changes and trends over time. Psychological realism. Psychological realism was not a big thing in stories until it was. And then suddenly it's all characters have to be psychologically real. And there, there is a, almost like a switch moment in the, the late 19th century to the early 20th century where psychological realism becomes a norm and it's, it's suddenly in everything. And when we talk about within the genre, we now have this opportunity with so many different voices for a genre that had its roots in a very traditional form of publishing and with a very traditional sort of outlook on things. We now have younger authors, older authors. We have uh, authors from countries all over the world. Their work is being translated into English or they are writing in English. We have books that are set in different locales and are challenging us. And we live in an absolute golden age of fantastic stories being told. And it is sometimes slightly disheartening when fans are about, well, no, I just want to read this thing again. And it's the same thing over and over again. And that can be very comforting. We all have comfort reads. We all have things that we sort of default to as the thing that we like. But being challenged by stories is, is one of the greatest feelings in the world. Speaking of which, just listening to you talk about stories just makes me want to pick up a book. Like, I feel like if I was having a, a reading slump, I could just go to your channel, just pick a video at random. I'm just be like, ah, yes, this is why I enjoy reading. Let me pick something up. <laughs> yeah, I echo that. Absolutely, AP. That's, that's you're incredibly inspiring when it comes to, to that. Of course, that's that's also because you're also incredibly knowledgeable and, and open-minded. Um, oh, and Taylor, I have to say thank you. I'm, I'm, humbled that you would say that about uh, my work. Um, I feel like, you know, part of what, and Steve posted a, a phenomenal uh, video. I encourage anybody who hasn't seen it to, to watch it about uh, what is Grimdark. And Grimdark- So Steve's face is like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that, that, that was a fabulous, really insightful, you know, really insightful video. And and to AP's point about, about, about psychological realism, you know, 
grimdark in particular, I think, as a subgenre in fantasy, is is something that I mean, we're struggling to define it. In some ways, it's very controversial. Does it even exist? You know, but but I, but I think Steve had 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 been on the same uh, thought process that part of the attraction of grimdark is you're looking for that psychological realism that that AP uh, refers to. You're looking for that. You know, uh, the books I read. You know, I'm 53 now, so the books I read, uh, classical books, uh, you know, or actual classics, you know, the Iliad, you know, Milton, Paradise Lost, you know, you know, um, some of them had great character work. You know, if you if you if you really dig into some of the, the books that I studied in university, um, the more Arthur, Thomas Mallory, like you know, they had great character work, but it was always overshadowed by it stopped short of really delving into you know, that holistic view of how people thought and their reactions to certain things and their quote unquote darker traits. And I and, and as and as now in our world where I feel in some ways we're becoming so much more open about discussing things. We're becoming so much more open about about our mental health issues, about our challenges. Like people are looking more and more for that holistic view of what we are as, as human beings. And I think that's part of what in fantasy grimdark is doing so well because you have these characters that are so real flawed gray you know uh you know so some questionable morals but also very real uh, some also some some really uh, great attributes and 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 nobility and courage and all these other things but complex you know uh, characters that have experienced trauma characters that have been psychologically mostly physically abused characters that you know have have you know, uh, you know that their their ambitions are raw and naked, and it's unashamed. And you know, their 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 inner fears and insecurities, and that's that's compelling, right? That's compelling to read, right? Because as 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 I always say, you know, I love J.R.R. Tolkien. I love reading Lord of the Rings, but I want to know what you know, um, you know, I want to know what Aragorn thought about um, other races and cultures. You know, I want to know what Aragon thought about uh, people who, uh, you know, did not identify as, as heterosexual. And although I will read that book and, and 9 times of 10 never think about that, if I now looking back as a 53-year-old reader and writer, that would have been fascinating. Of course, that's not the book that, that J.R. wrote, and I'm not expecting that he would have wrote that. But wouldn't that have been fascinating to see that? And I think that's what we're looking for more now with our, with our, our fantasy in particular. So. And, uh, you know, uh, N.K. Jemison's uh, Broken Earth trilogy, like a, a stunning trilogy. Now, I have a confession. I am a huge fan of book one. And I'm not as big a fan of the later two. Absolutely adored. Thought it was one of the best books ever written when I was reading it. I just absolutely amazing. I still think it is an amazing trilogy and people should read it. But I was blown away by book one. Um, and I, I think like Jemison is an incredibly talented author. And we, uh, Seth Dickinson, uh, I think the, one of the books is behind me right there. Seth Dickinson's The, the Trader Baru Cormorant was again, another one of these books that I read and it blew my socks off because it was another fantasy book uh, that was new, that was different, that was approaching telling these fantasy stories and what they were telling with them was different and the fact that we live in this day and age where we have such variety 
where you have stories that challenge our perception, where you have stories that show us how things can be. Like we think back utopian and dystopian fiction um, as genres. We, we still see elements of that. Uh, the psychological realism of characters, but we can have the hyper-violence uh, being celebrated or hyper-violence being criticized. That the violence inherent in a, or the violence that's depicted in a book is not necessarily the defining characteristic. It's how that violence is treated. And you can have very, very violent stuff depicted in gruesome detail, but depending on what the narrative is doing with that, that could be condemning it or it could be celebrating it. And that's the flexibility of stories that you know we, we were talking about at the beginning, that depending on what an author wants to do with these elements, how they want to explore them, that narrative is incredibly powerful in showing us other people's perspectives, other people's ways of moving through the world, other people's views of the world. And it can challenge our biases, whether they are um, unconscious that we didn't realize that we had, or maybe it can help us reaffirm our position on something because we go, you know what, actually, seeing it now laid out in a different way, I, I do still have this belief that literature is not just about entertainment. Uh, we read for entertainment. We can read for escapism. We can read for knowledge. We can read for experience. There are so many different ways to read. And it's not that this book is for education. This book is just for enjoyment. We can draw on all these different experiences when we read. And that's why the diversity of authors we have now, the diversity of stories we have now, is so incredibly important. And different styles, different approaches, this richness, a giant tapestry of genre now that's not made up of the same old threads running through it. We have an enormous tapestry made up of different threads, of different colors, of different textures that give us this genre that we love. So let's get through a couple of uh, comments really quick uh, Nathaniel says hi Steve Epic Taylor AP I wish I could recover from academia we're <laughs> 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 feeling better AP okay uh, how it says late night for me then <laughs> uh, Philip is here we are a storytelling animal oh my nemesis yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's see how it all looks I got some AP talk about narrative construction and Thomas. The <laughs> <laughs> my understanding of stories. And then brush the canvas. Hello, brush the canvas. Okay. Our friend Layla is here. Hello, hey, Layla. You're, hope you're doing well. Uh, Layla's been joining us on the Malazan discussions. It's been it's been really great time with her. Uh, Phillips says cultures with primary oral uh, formulaic mo uh, modes of storytelling have ideas about story structure very different from what many of us expect. Yeah. Pax Panic is here. Wishes yeah, of a happy stream. Hey, Pax. And uh, AP, uh, a question. Uh, here are some, are there some narrative models that are more prevalent now than in the past? It seems to me that uh, metaphysical romance, uh, Hayden White, isn't always popular. Well, it depends on the genre. And I, I have noticed there has been a movement towards almost 
structuring your chapters and your style of writing in a very visual auditory way um almost as if they are writing to a tv format and you know that can work really really well george r, r. martin does a lot of that in his writing he writes very much in that cinematic mode um that is not the be all and end all of literary expression and i think sometimes we fall into a a trap of thinking that should be how we write we should be writing so that i can sell my novel to a production company and they can turn it into a tv show you know, but is that the best method for your story is is that the best way to communicate it's not that it is bad but it's only one way of doing it and types of writing and styles of writing go in and out of fashion all the time the new weird and the construction of uh, the deconstruction of, of fantasy tropes, bringing a lot of horror elements and bringing a lot of the politics in, um, you know, that rose and it kind of dissolved as a, a counter genre to a lot of stuff that was going on in fantasy. We've seen the rise of popularity of Grimdark, but now that's sort of sort of uh, dispersed through the genre as a, a new general approach to how we depict violence or what we're depicting violence for and the, the different reasons. And none of that is new. The violence and fantasy has been there from the very beginning. They, reading the old Conan stories, they were incredibly violent for the time. But we've become a lot more desensitized to violence. So we've we've kind of dialed it up to 11 in certain stories because some of our reactions to it have become numb. So styles and trends. Anytime someone says, oh, you can't do that anymore, no one will like it. Guaranteed next year, a book will come out that will be that thing and it will be a bestseller and will suddenly flood the market and then you'll have hundreds of imitators and they won't do it as well. And then you go, oh, well, that form is now dead and then someone else will do it and you go, stop proving me wrong. <laughs> I think there's there's no, and it's funny that uh, Nathaniel referred to uh, Metahurst or Golden Romance. I need to find the book. I'm not going to go deep diving now, but um, self-published fantasy. So uh, Taylor and I are both both honored to be judges. It's Pierre, I'm speaking for Taylor, but honored to be judges uh, in the current iteration of the self-published fantasy blog off, you know, essentially created by Mark Lawrence. And I believe, and I, I, Nathaniel, I need to find this book. I don't, it's not in our blog. There, it, there's something that I remember reading the blurb. I can't remember if it's uh, what blog it's in. It, 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 it hit me as being almost like meta historical romance. And there's a lot, a lot more romance uh, books in this version of, of SPFU in the previous one. We had some, we have our essentially romance fantasy, two romance fantasy books come in the top two, um, you know, uh, and, and, and I think, um, the one thing that, um, to, to AP's point about, you know, um, trends, you know, everybody's trying to catch the hottest trend and then people say, oh, well, that won't work and then suddenly becomes the new hottest trend. I think nowhere else can you, is that more evident than in self-published fantasy. If you want to see those stories that um, you're wondering, why can't I find a story about this? Get it, you know, pick up pick up self-published fantasy because the, the, the diversity of of the types of of subgenres and writing and stories is just unparalleled, you know what stuff that you know you just and and you know I read some books and I'm like wow how, how could I not have heard of this book, you know and this author, and hence my my shelf keeps filling up with more and more self published fantasy books, 
And, you know, I'd like to hear Taylor's impression because I don't know Taylor, uh, I think she's said before that, you know, obviously in the past, she predominantly read traditionally published book and now she's uh, found this whole, you know, cachet of, of great self-published fantasy, including uh, Legacy of the Bright Wash, which was that second place uh, book in last year's SPFBO, which is a, a romance. Uh, romance is a big element. It's Gaslight Grimdark, but romance is big. And Taylor has an amazing uh, video review of Legacy of the Bright Wash. But yeah, so I want to hear Taylor's perspective. But yeah, I, I think self-published fantasy, if particularly where you can see that, you know, those stories you're looking for that you're wondering, oh, what? you can find it. You can find it there. So, Yeah, I definitely agree. So Lana is not with us today, but she's a, a good friend of ours as well. And she runs something called the uh, India Chords Readathon that I joined uh, two years ago now. Oh my God, what is time? How has that been two years? Uh, but about two years ago. And that is what showed me like the iceberg <laughs> of um, self-published fantasy, you know, how, how deep it goes and how much there is. And I definitely agree that there's a lot more freedom and different types of storytelling. Um, I've already read books that have things I had never seen before. And the self-published, the amount of self-published books I've read is small compared to the amount of traditional published uh, books that I've read. That is definitely true. Uh, and to talk about different, uh, uh, genres and kind of the flux and flow of them. Something interesting I'm noticing is Grimdark is huge. And I think AP made a really good point in that it's kind of disseminated into just some aspects of it or just what we expect in fantasy now. Uh, so I think after that trend, though, it's certainly not over and it'll exist for a very long time. But I do think I'm noticing as a reader, the things that I'm seeing people pick up and interested in is almost in contrast to that. So cozy fantasy, romance, like when I, I've always enjoyed romance in my books, but whenever I would bring that up before, it was scoffed at, depending on who I'm talking to. <laughs> but it could be seen as lowering the value of a book. But now I'm noticing people are more open to it. And this is, I have no evidence for this whatsoever. But my guess is that some of this is coming in response to the new standard of like violence and grappling with real world stories or real world issues in fantasy. So I think there's almost a desire to find a cozy corner. So Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry, like that book exploded. And the poor guy um, just posted it on Twitter and was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> because it exploded in a way he didn't expect. So I do think that while everything does exist, the popularity of certain trends play off of each other. So if something is big for a long time, maybe people are going to look for the opposite because they want something that feels refreshing, you know, when something becomes not oversaturated, that's the wrong word to use, but becomes prolific. People might well, look for something else. But, but even within fantasy, think of uh, the impact J.R.R. Tolkien had, The Lord of the Rings. And we had a number of different works, uh, Terry Brooks' Sword of Shannara, uh, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, um, Stephen Donaldson's Thomas Covenant, uh, Terry Goodkin's Sword of Truth, were so heavily influenced by. And sometimes they these authors were trying to replicate Tolkien and other times argue against it. And we, we saw that in reactions to Tolkien trying to do something different. And so uh, there's an expression here, swings and roundabouts, that 
something becomes a dominant form and therefore people try to replicate it, but other people try to argue against it. And this is how genres evolve and they grow and they flourish. Then they become so dominant that people go, well, it's oversaturated. We've reached peak fantasy. It's time for something else and something else will rise. And we see this with genre discussion all the time that the, the Western, for a while, the Western was the form of cinema. It dominated cinema. Then there was, for a period of time, the rise of the horror movie. We had all those slasher movies. Now is the time of the superhero. And I think since about 2008, there's been at least one article every year that says, have we reached peak superhero? Have we reached superhero saturation since 2008? That, but eventually interest in superheroes will die off and something else will fill that void. And when we think of Tolkien, Hobbit, Hobbits really didn't exist below the neck down. There are very few mentions of, of anyone with, with bits below the waist. And that, that influenced the genre. And then people went, well, why? And the, the guy Gabriel's Tigana is, is highly sexual in places. So it's, it's not that a lot of these things are new. It's quite often they're new to us because a lot of what we've been reading has not featured them. And then we, as we so often do, universalize our experience and think that is the norm. And we project it outward and go, oh, but that's what it is. Because I've, I've read 20 books and from those 20 books, none of them did this. Therefore, that must be the norm. And I have a good sample, 20 books. And it, it can surprise us when we realize the variety of stuff that is out there. And the independently published, the um, authors who are self-published are going out there and they are telling exactly their stories. And this was the diversity that I was talking about earlier. And whether someone is traditionally published or not, when you find that story that speaks to you personally, it is like something resonating in your soul that you go, how did that author know me so well that they wrote this thing that speaks so directly to me? And because readers are active participants in the creation of narrative. And this is something I, I think people overlook. Authors write a story, authors write it down. But when we as readers approach it, we take those squiggles on the page, we take those symbols and we bring them into our brain and we give them meaning. We create these worlds. We are co-creators of these worlds with the author in making them come alive in our heads. And it is a very intimate act and it is a very active act. And because of that, that is why we can get so invested. And when we find those stories that feature characters that speak directly to us or characters that we connect with in some way that we can experience that emotion or something that drags us along, that can be so powerful and really get down inside you. And no one can tell you ahead of time what that story is going to be. And that's the beauty of all of these stories coming out. Yeah, I'll let Steve answer that question, those questions first before I uh, before. Yeah, uh, Camp Cake says, every time I listen to AP talking about anything, I feel like he's literally, like, he literally <laughs> not where he's going. And yet when, I, when he finishes, I feel a huge void in my soul that keeps me thinking. Well, what a compliment. Yeah, very, very true. 
an API. Uh, one I had a thought on on Grimdark and the kind of the rise of the darker the darker types of stories. Do you see? A, did you see a trend in, in the culture of the time period of of uh, TV shows like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or The Sopranos? That time period. Do Do you see a, a correlation there between the popularity of those types of stories on TV, and and that media versus what we the kind of the rise of the the darker toned fantasy books in particular? Um, I don't necessarily know why I would draw a direct correlation between specific TV shows and the, the rise of fantasy. But if you, if you look at the level of violence that we accept in TV shows, the 1980s was full of very hyper-violent action movies. 1980s was full of violence. And then when we get into the 1990s, a lot of that violence is now in TV shows that we now accept a certain level of violence. So take something uh, like one of the, the CW superhero shows, something like Arrow, uh, the, the Green Arrow show. Now, think of season one. That's about Oliver Queen arriving back, having been presumed dead, and he has a kill list. And he is going to go around town and he's going to assassinate people. He is going to kill them. And they have lots of fights and he is killing people. That's, that's the entire plan. And now... Go back to the 1980s and imagine pitching that to a TV producer. Right, I have this show aimed for uh, sort of 12 to 16-year-olds, and it's going to be about this guy who's presumed dead, and he's going to arrive back in town, and he has a list, and he's going to go around every week and try and assassinate people. And they're, oh, so who's the hero that's going to stop him? No, 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 he is the hero. Now, obviously, the, the show evolves from there. That That's not the be-all and end-all of the show. But imagine going back to the 1980s and trying to pitch that as a teenage show. And then think, well, how has our perception of violence changed that we now think that that level of violence is appropriate for children? I, I wrote a, a guest blog on a Stoney the Guider, you know, great, great writer, intellectual person about the rise of grimdark like a couple of years going back now and um you know to ap's point i, I also believe there was a, a a purposeful george r. r martin one of my favorite famous favorite writers states implicitly he says listen uh jr token was is 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 my is my iconic writer my hero i but i one thing that i didn't appreciate was writing is that I wanted the grit. I wanted the realism. I wanted the, the flawed, gray, dirtiness of, of what uh, essentially he was talking about more medieval type uh, fantasy sense we're all about. I want, I want that, you know, the, 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 all the lecherousness of the, of, of the king and, and all the barbarity of the fighting and all of the, you know, the horrible brutality of the political machinations he wanted that plainly for all to see and it was in direct response to what he believed was the more sanitized uh version of 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 someone like a token great writing of course again token is 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 germs hero but um you know i i do believe that there was a distinctive i think taylor had mentioned almost like a, a, a purposeful backlash the way now you know taylor mentioned uh you know the cozy fancies becoming more and more um, you know, popular almost in response to, okay, well, when you read, you know, Michael R. Fletcher or Sarah Chorn or, or even my book, you may need to, you know what, let me read something a bit lighter after I've read six of these, right? After I've seen, you know, blood splat across the pages and people being traumatized and, you know, my favorite 
character dying bloodily. Let me just read something about, you know, something so innocuous and just, you know what I mean? And 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 I and I do think that um, you know, I agree that I think as as human beings, we we have this tendency to go, I really want to binge on this horror. AP mentioned that, you know, you know, Friday the 13th, Michael, you know, slashing this memory people, and it's all cool. And then, you know, Carrie, and then suddenly we want to back off and 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 watch, you know, superheroes that are indestructible. I can never be killed. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, I think I think maybe part of it is that as human beings, we are somewhat uh reactionary to certain things, and, and we don't realize when we become so immersed in one particular type of thing then it's almost so, oh my god well i can't take that anymore I, I need i need i need an antidote almost to this so i need to go off and 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 read light and fluffy so but and and one of the things that we we always forget is that while we talk about fantasy and say the rise of grimdark it, it's not that grimdark exists in a vacuum we had uh vietnam war fiction we had korean war fiction a lot of that was entering the mainstream. We had the rise of political thrillers um, and the legal threat, like John Grisham and Tom Clancy. You, you couldn't walk anywhere without those books being visible as, we have 100 copies and will be sold out in half an hour. Um, and those things popularized different approaches. And authors uh, and readers, we steal and borrow and uh, soak in all of this from all around us. And, you know, even like the Korean fiction and the Vietnam War fiction, we can go back to the First World War. We can, we can look at the rise of that darker, the, uh, the undercutting of the patriotic view and the jingoistic view of war, this great and glorious combat, to look at the devastation of war. But that was, that's First World War. If we want to talk about Machiavellian politics, well, we just used the word Machiavelli. Oh, where did that come from? When we want to talk about the uh, sex and seduction of political maneuvering and people murdering each other, you know, Macbeth and Hamlet might come into play. That we exist in a giant, uh, I think it was Terry Pratchett, so Terry Pratchett called it a cauldron of story, or he might have called it a gumbo. He was interviewed number, a number of times about this, but we exist in this giant sort of gumbo of story, and every author is drawing out these different elements. And because there are movements and trends. There are imitators and then reactions too. And for some reason, one will pick up steam and we don't know why, and it'll become more popular. And suddenly that will become a focus and it'll expand out. And then for some reason, and we don't know why, it'll eventually contract because nothing expands forever, despite what economists think about economies. What's, what's so interesting too about this is one of the reasons that I view a rise in grimdark specifically in not just you say it doesn't exist in a vacuum and that speaks so true from my experience because having been a lover of fantasy since i was young it was not cool to like fantasy it was not a thing that you would go out and you would say hey i'm a fantasy it was not a good image all right <laughs> so something i noticed is a huge shift after game of thrones where suddenly fantasy could be cool because it was vicious like people saw it as it people saw it as like the uncool superhero kind of um is the the view that i got anyway 
being a, a fan of it. And then after Game of Thrones, it was like, oh, I didn't know it could be like this. I didn't know people could stab each other in the back and it could be political. And I saw the exact same trend with manga or anime, which also was not cool. But then uh, Attack on Titan came out and that was huge in the West. And manga or anime has always had the genre of violence, um, you know, genres that include violence and political, you know, intrigue and, and deep characters and trauma. It's always been there. But the view was, well, not to bash Sailor Moon because I love Sailor Moon, but the view was Sailor Moon, you know, spinning and, and magic and stuff. So I think I've seen a huge change outside of just the people who like this specific genre of book or, or movie, I've seen that expand and become suddenly cool in the last couple of years. And, you know, I'm not bitter or anything, but <laughs> uh, it is something that is very clearly visible. And I don't know the source of that. I just know that there's a huge connection there. I, th I think we all like to be able to go, well, I liked it before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Excuse you. <laughs> um, but, but when we think about it, like Game of Thrones, the TV show, was what made A Song of Ice and Fire cool to read. Not Because remember, A Song of Ice and Fire, the first books had been out for a while, and they weren't cool until the TV show. And suddenly a broader mainstream audience saw it, and a bunch of them went, oh, this isn't what I thought fantasy was. Quite often because they thought of fantasy as the Disney movies, or they thought of fantasy as some sort of very sanitized, childish thing. And they hadn't realized what we've all been talking about in terms of, oh, this is an excellent fantasy novel. Oh, is it? Is it about some wizard? And they, they were dismissing it because of, no, and I mean this as in terms of lack of knowledge, but ignorance, not, not being aware of. Um, and, but we do the same thing with so much. Like, I remember the first time I saw Akira and just going, like, I hadn't realized that an animated film could be like this. And uh, like seeing Ghost in the Shell. And then someone showing me Urusuka Doji. And I went, I don't want to see films like this because that was not what I was expecting. I was expecting Akira, Ghost in the Shell, and not Urusuka Doji. But anime and animation, the, the different styles. Studio Ghibli, if you think of the adaptations that they've done of uh, even Western stories, and so much of that is dealing with that trauma from World War II that, that underpins a lot of the storytelling in some of those films. That there are these cultural trends, to, to return to one of the points that we're talking about, about an unconscious perception of reality, of what we are assuming is the thing that is normal for us to talk about, normal for us to feel, that infuses our stories. And with the rise of streaming, the rise of digital communication, being able to have a video chat with people all over the world simultaneously, this was not possible 20 years ago without a phenomenal amount of money. And now we treat it as matter of course. And yet, Think of the impact that streaming has had on narrative structure. We can binge watch an entire TV show, uh, the entire season, all in one go. Whereas we used to have to wait every week and then there would be, oh, and there's a break for two weeks because of this holiday or this sporting event. And then there's another few, and then there's a break because of this special event. 
And sometimes a 24 episode show would take all year for us to see that it was all drawn out. We have become so accustomed now to everything being on demand. I have to wait one week to see the next episode. This is not right. Oh, that author wants to take some time to write their next book. Well, I'm not buying any of them until the last book is finished. You are so lucky you live in this time period. When I the was call out, up, I'm living for it. <laughs> when I was growing up, that wasn't an option. The fact that that book you had, I had to go into my local bookshop, ask them, could they order books for me? Yeah. Because they wouldn't routinely stock them. Yeah. And it was, well, we can't get them in here. We might get them in in six months. And you're like, okay, I'll wait. <laughs> the, we have a an instantaneous gratification problem. But that also goes to the styles of narrative that we like. We no longer want narratives that slowly take their time. Sometimes we go, oh, well, I want this faster. I want it faster. I, uh, I need to know up front who the characters are, how the magic works, how this works. And it's this is actually part of the the narrative construction that we are surrounded by that we have absorbed that we haven't realized that we've done um so sorry to barge in with that but i liked fantasy before it was cool was my main point same here i liked fantasy before it was cool i just uh yeah <laughs> Where's the hair flip, Epic? You got <laughs> the hair flip going. That was awesome, Taylor. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Let Steve, get to the questions again before I. Sure. Uh, Writer of things says always a pleasure. To, always a pleasure to hear AP talk. His esteemed company makes it that much better. Thanks for putting this together. Well, thanks for dropping by and spending time with us. Uh, Nathaniel says gossip. <laughs> uh, T book magic says this. This is my first time hearing about writing rules. But I feel like all books would be the same if authors did an experiment slash put their own twist on things, and that would be boring. Yeah. Uh, I recently read Freitag's whole text. It's really useful, minus his takes on national literatures. It has a, it has a bad reputation because mo people mostly read text about it and not the original text. Hmm. It's very important. Uh, Nathaniel says, well, it's been argued that the that some Native American societies pre-contact were matriarchal despite their uh, persistence of male leaders. Our friend Johanna is here. Johanna, I hope, hope you're having a good uh, Friday. Uh, Philip says, whereas critics are not liars or... <laughs> <laughs> Nemesis. <laughs> uh, our friend Fred to be read says, so often it's that ability or inability to walk this right line of showing slash telling that can make or break a story for me. Let me see the, the queerdom and imagine that world without telling me everything. So don't, don't be too heavy handed. I think that's, that's uh, Barker's Stone Ships is an example of perhaps too, too much show that is a matriarchal world, but it takes a while to figure out how it works. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Some fireballs thrown, and I've only been listening for a couple of minutes. Joe <laughs> uh, says, uh, yes. "To write how stars are made, almost finished." And uh, Eric McLuhan is uh, soon still working on Thousandfold Thought. He's Thousandfold Thought is such a good book. Like, uh, has anyone here, apart from me and Steve, read uh, like our Scott Baker book? 
Oh my god. <laughs> Listen, wow. Already, as Taylor says, you guys are giving me some serious FOMO here. I I it, I've I was organizing my book list the other day and it's like oh, I have to get this R Scott Baker stuff. My I'm gosh. literally on Goodreads right now adding to Ride Hill's Chasm. So we're we're all on the same page here. <laughs> so like, let, all... me, let, 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 let me just, I just need to say something about this book that blows my mind. So like touching a little bit on what AP was saying about um, like uh, exploring ideas to like um, expand them beyond what we are basically used to, like to kind of counteract our biases turning our biases basically into strengths by expanding on decisions we might have made arbitrarily or like, that were expedient. But um, R. Scott Baker, and usually what I do as a writer is that I, I carry an idea that I hold or a belief I have, and then I introduce like uh, a challenging belief and I allow it to clash in the book, and then ideas come out of that and you can go in any direction you want. R. Scott Baker talks like there's, there's, there's one point of view that is obviously like imposed on the character on every character on 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 the whole story itself but the way he writes it out it's 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 difficult to it's it's difficult to how he expresses it to while at least while you're reading it and when you pause every couple of of minutes to like digest what you just read it's like so intelligent the philosophy like he draws from so many different philosophies to create this beautifully written like narrative and prose that he breaks so many rules in that book it's like I, i'm like i i watch all my rules i'm like ah, i don't like exposition i don't like exposition i loved reading his exposition why the prose was so neat and so good so thousandfold thought things get crazy like if we ever have an opportunity i'd love to to to, to know what you think about it eric what are your thoughts on baker uh, ap um i've only read the first trilogy and then the book is it neuropath mm -hmm. um Neu neuropath was one of the most disturbing horrifying <laughs> uh reads that i've ever like don't get me wrong incredibly well written but i I wanted to go and shower my brain with bleach afterwards. It, <laughs> it, it was a book that just reeked into my brain and I just was going, I don't want you there, go away. Uh, but <laughs> I, I read that first trilogy and I have to admit, I have to be in the mood to read R. Scott Baker's world because it is incredibly challenging and dark and difficult and it is exquisitely realized. There, uh, His writing is... is really really good like he is very talented just on the on the metric of words on page was that good word yes word was good like he has beautiful writing on the page he has an exquisitely realized world he challenges uh, one of the the great things about fantasy is obviously literalizing metaphors or extending concepts to their most extreme and that's part of what uh, baker puts on the page this world is an extreme extension of some very prevalent beliefs in our world and then infusing that with a, a an approach to magic based on different aspects of philosophy and different ways of approaching and thinking about it it is extraordinarily clever and good writing it is not one that i go you know what i'm going to snuggle down and i'm going <laughs> to tuck into this book tonight because it, it is enormously rewarding but 
like some of my favorite books. It's it's not one that I would casually just sort of ah oh, just read it for half an hour. It I have to be in the mood for it, and um, I I need to know going in because there are some very disturbing scenes in it, and I wouldn't want anyone walking in unaware right, of that. Yes, it's it's very fair to warn people. Like yeah. Um, Sounds like so, exactly my kind of book. <laughs> and you know something, in, in, in also regard to something that AP was saying earlier about um, how you cannot just read a book, uh, you can't read a book um, just uh, for education or just to, to, there isn't one book, specific book just for education or just for entertainment or just for escapism. Um, this, um, R. Scott Baker, right, I, I find, and it's very rare where I find like enjoying a book as a writer way more than I enjoyed that way more, way more than I enjoyed as a reader because it's 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 um it's it's re like every sentence feels very very intentionally written and it's just it's a different way to appreciate a book like I enjoyed it as a reader but I enjoyed way more as a writer and I understand exactly what you mean when you say um, you need to you need to put like a kind of like a disclaimer before you read it, especially in the later books where it even gets like so much darker. Because um, yeah, like uh, I, the the one thing was that I was reading it with you know, kind of like a reading group, so I just read all three books and I was mind blown for like a month and a half, <laughs> you know. But it, it's 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 if if you enjoy dark fantasy like or grim dark, like I feel like that that is. That is one very, I, I feel, defining book of what Grimdark is, as like based on my understanding of it. Yeah, that sounds that sounds incredible. I, I have to I have to read that now. Um, I, I I think we, one we of, can buddy read it, PL. I haven't read it either, so okay. It sounds <laughs> like a plan. I'd love to. Together. <laughs> it sounds like a plan for the first book. Uh, Revenant discussion for the first book next month. So. Yeah. I can't wait for that. I have so much to say. I just have to be careful not to spoil anything because I've read all three books and I'm just I'm I'm looking for I'm looking for people to listen to me talk right now. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, I, I again, you know, like um, I, it's funny that um, that Epic would say that it's after becoming a, a published author, and it happened. I think it was just organically. That yes, you do start to read books differently than prior to becoming a writer, and 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 I don't know if it's necessarily a critical, a more critical lens, or or an editorial lens. It, it, there's something about it, and I can't wait to hear what a, a, AP has to say as well. But there there is something different now that uh, that I have my own books and my own ideas about writing and, and what makes a good book, and having written one versus prior to doing that. And, and one of the hardest things as a writer to accept, I think, is that once you write the book, and I say this, this is, it no longer belongs to you. It's weird. You have ownership and responsibility for your writing, but the book no longer belongs to you. Taylor's interpretation versus Steve's interpretation versus AP's versus Epic's of my book will be completely different. And they own that interpretation, and they can decide whatever they want about it, good, bad, or indifferent. And they can interpret the book completely uh, differently than I wrote it. And, and that's something that is is almost scary in a way too, as a writer that you say you go wow you know like I didn't you know you read a review it's like but 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 I didn't mean that when I wrote it that but that's that's not that's not yours anymore right that's that's the reader um, uh, rightly so 
uh, imposing their their background, their experiences, and 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 their their interpretation of the book. And it's and it's a weird feeling, but but I guess on the other side of that now as a writer, my interpretations are so different. The way I I, I analyze a book is so different to to prior than doing that. And I always feel now I have to remember almost like a switch in my mind. I I equated to I need to relax and just read the book and enjoy it and not look at anything else. Just read it and enjoy it and 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 not think about turn my writer brain off. And, and just just enjoy the story. And I'm learning to do that better now. But at first, it was really hard, especially when I was in the throes of editing. You know, especially line editing, right? And you're like, you're just, and then you read almost, oh well, and yeah. I I I I'm getting much better now. But that was one of my my failings that at first. Uh, but now I'm much I'm much better at just enjoying the story. No, I'm I'm like completely fine letting my mind go in two different directions. It's like I'm enjoying it, but ah, I wish it was written better. Or wow, this is beautifully written, and but like, mm, do am I really enjoying it? Like I'm completely fine with that because for me, what it helps me, it helps me, it helps me um, play with uh, what the intentions of the writer was and his execution of his intention at least my my postulations of what his intention of his intentions and my understanding or like uh lack of understanding of how he was able to like pull pull it out pull it off so i let i let i go two different directions but like when i'm trying to reconcile it then i like i i am able to like make like a descriptive booktube video about it because i'm like playing off each like uh each each appreciation of the book like against it against itself yes so ap with being an editor and having read so many books do you ever <clears> wish <throat> just turn that part of your brain off and just read a book or watch a movie or you show absorb any kind of story and not not have that part of your brain be dissecting it yeah um it's the i would say the the major downside <coughs> to studying and analyzing how stories function when you really get into it and you start going into a lot of the different ways of breaking apart narrative. The downside to that is, think of how much of our entertainment is story-based. So watching a film, watching a TV show, listening to uh, an audiobook, listening to a radio play, reading a book, playing a computer game that has a narrative element, that suddenly all, all of these things, you you sort of go, get me a very large Q-tip and I'm just going <laughs> to turn the brain off for a bit. Reset. It, it is, it can be difficult. And there are, there are some very popular authors whose work, as, as much as I admire aspects of it, I don't enjoy reading their work because there's either something about their style of writing or their approach to something or how they've gone about and done this, or I've spotted the story structure. I've started how I've, I've spotted how they're interweaving, uh, interweaving plot A, plot B, and plot C. And I I have recalled on on a number of occasions reading a book, and partway through, I think it was halfway through book one, I not only predicted how book one would end, but how book two would end, and how the trilogy would end. <laughs> And I read the entire trilogy. Like the author still got their money from me because it's it's only fair. Um, 
And also, by the way, see people who buy books on um, uh, on Amazon for their thing and then return them. Don't do that. Amazon is not a, li a lending library. Get a library card and get them from the library because authors still get paid. Don't buy them from Amazon and then return them because that ends up costing authors money. But anyway, back to my point. Um, I read it and I was disappointed that it, it pretty much worked out 98% of, of what I'd figured out. And there, you know, you go to watch a Marvel movie. A lot of the Marvel movies follow exactly the same pattern. And when you know that pattern, when you recognize that pattern, it's not as exciting. But there's still things about it that you can appreciate. And when you edit a novel, it's a different style and approach to reading than if I'm sitting there and going, I'm going to read this for fun. If I'm editing, I'm editing on, I try to do it on my computer and I look at, I'm in a different mode. When I'm reading for pleasure, I try to do it with a physical book and sit somewhere else. When all of these different tricks to try and trick my brain into not applying the same techniques. But ultimately, when a book is incredibly well-written, I can find it incredibly enjoyable, even if the story isn't that enthralling or uh, the narrative events, I, I know what they're going to be. If it's well expressed, I lose myself in that. If it's not particularly well expressed, this is something that trips me up more. Um, and it's a personal thing for me. But if it's not well expressed, I find that more difficult to read. But if it's written in a style that maybe would work better as an audiobook, there was recently a, a whole series uh, of books, a space opera series called The Expeditionary Force that I listened to as audiobooks because they were wildly entertaining for me to listen to, but I knew I wouldn't enjoy reading them physically. And, you know, it, it is a drawback to studying narrative that you start seeing the bare bones and you start seeing the tricks. And sometimes it's harder for an author to fool you because when you're reading through it and you go, oh, I get the subtext here. I see what you're highlighting here. Uh, give it two chapters. Oh, look. It's the reveal, ta-da. You lose some of that, but then you gain satisfaction in going, that was actually really well played. I liked how they did that. So AP, like how satisfying is it when you feel like, oh, I've predicted, I've, uh, I know I know what's gonna happen and you still slog through it and eventually like you, like you, you get to a point where everything just like, it just, it's just, it's not what you predicted and it just like blows your mind. Like it's such a like it's such a, a good feeling. I and what book and what I, book and what book did it did that for you? What book did that for you? I will read that book too. Don't dissect <laughs> that. But um, genuinely, trying to I try not to predict plot points. Uh, that that is not what I am reading for. That's that's not what I'm trying to invest in the moment that's on the page. And the idea of trying to figure out where it's going. It's unfortunate that some authors tend to are, are slightly heavy handed on foreshadowing. And because you know the pattern, you know how that foreshadowing is likely to take place. And you play a game of probability. And But as long as the, the moment is good, it is the, and I know it's cliched to say this, the journey, not the destination. If 99% of the book has held my interest, and then the ending was, yeah, well, I knew that was going to happen. I don't know how many times we have read a story or watched a film where the good guy beats the bad guy at the end. We knew it was going to happen. That's not a surprise. 
it doesn't need to be a surprise every time. A story well told is its own reward in a lot of respects. And again, I genuinely love stories that when I read them, I'm surprised. And then when I think back on it, I went, it was inevitable that it was going to end up that way. But I didn't spot it, you tricksy authors, you. <laughs> and I love, I love when that happens. I, I love when authors surprise me. I love when authors challenge the patterns that I am I'm seeing. And they because they're aware of exactly the same patterns and they go, oh yeah, but I'm gonna subvert this one. And you know, you can you can trip yourself up. Our reader expectations, what what we map onto a book, that can radically change the book in front of you. Mm. Because if you're everyone must have experienced this. Someone's told you this film is very funny. So you sit down expecting a comedy and you are sitting there going, I want to die. This is the <laughs> worst thing that I have ever. How can anyone find this funny? And then your friend said, oh, no, but I didn't mean uh, comedy and sort of like a funny ha-ha sort of thing. I meant, you know, it was it was amusing in an intellectual way. You could, well, I was expecting people hitting each other in the face with frying pans and slipping on banana peels. But, but our expectation, when we go in with that, this film's really scary. So you go in expecting a scary film. Therefore, you're already inured to it. So the film has to be extra, extra scary for it to have any uh, effect. Oh, this this film is so blah. I, when, uh, when people tell us so much about a story, we can create images. So if someone says, this is an epic military fantasy, and you go, I know what epic means. I know what military fantasy means. I'm going to read this. And then they go, but there was only like one battle in this entire book. I thought you said this was epic military. It was just people talking. It was soldiers sitting around talking. You go, but, mm -hmm. but because the, it didn't match the expectation. Now, does that mean that the book was bad? No, but our expectation can shape so much in how we approach literature that sometimes it's best going in almost blind to go i'm just going to read the book someone said this was a good book but they told me nothing about it i sit down i read it and go yeah that was a good book didn't know what was going to happen because i wasn't expecting anything i wasn't doing that so those are so just my, my steve thoughts. steve just a real question so on the book that shall not be named or the series that shall not be named do you think it was our expectations that ruined it for us maybe yeah there's a probably yeah probably that i think and i tried to read it just we just weren't fans of it and i've gotten hate mail about it but <laughs> i think it may it may have been uh expectations that we expected something different than, we, than what we what we got so it's possible well i actually oh sorry if you did you want to no uh, I recently was talking uh, to a couple self-pub authors about marketing and how it, as, a, as a reader, when you hear the way that a book is marketed, it's going to color what you expect from it, talking about expectations, right? So uh, you can't see it, but uh, I have six of, the Six of Crows duology on my shelf up above. And that is like in the YA fantasy world that is like the quintessential modern, modern times, the quintessential uh, duology to look towards for like a heist, you know, found family heist story. It blew up. It's huge. And I also really love it. But after that, so many books were marketed as the new Six of Crows. And 
there is a book that I can think of off the top of my head, um, The Gilded Wolves, that is objectively, I don't think, not a bad book. But because I was expecting, so many people compared it to Six of Crows. So I went in like, oh, you know, I'm expecting these tropes. I'm expecting, you know, the same kind of narrative structure. And that's not what it was. Uh, and so it's a prime example of me saying this book was not for me because of the expectations I went into it with. And marketing played a huge role in that because, you know, it's traditionally published. So that that was the tagline for the book. And I almost feel really bad for the author because I've heard many people had the same experience as me <laughs> with that book. So I think talking to some of the, the indie authors about this, there's a debate as to whether you leave it really broad. Just say, I write fantasy. Read it, please. Or, or you say like, I have this plot point, this vibe to my book and set an expectation so that it can find the right readership. So the balance between those things, especially if you don't have a marketing team behind you, a lot of people were talking about how hard that can be. Well, I, I'll give you two examples that sort of go to this. The first is, you know, when sometimes you watch a, a trailer for a, an upcoming film, and after the trailer, you go, I know exactly what's going to happen. I've seen all the best bits of the film. I don't need to go and see the film. But the person sitting next to you goes, right, I've, I, I know who the main characters are. I know what type of film it's going to be. I know what the best bits of the film are going to be. So now I want to go and see the whole thing. That people use that information in different ways. Someone wants to know ahead of time. And other people go, no, but why would I bother seeing it now? I've seen a one and a half minute clip and I have actually just worked out what your entire film is and I'm bored. But think about something like um, The Lord of the Rings and the uh, the the first book, Lord Filesbane of the, the Thomas Covenant books. And in on one hand, you can say, yes, it's very Tolkien-esque. It's very like Tolkien. And someone who has just read The Lord of the Rings might go into that and go, oh, really? I guarantee you within the first 20 pages, they're going to go, how is this in any yeah. way like The Lord of the Rings? Because what they are, they are thinking that The Lord of the Rings is, they have a list of criteria. And what you're thinking about The Lord of the Rings is you have a different set of criteria. So when, when I said earlier that, you know, uh, it's hard to deny the influence of the Lord of the Rings on the eye of the world. And people can either look at it as influence and inspiration, or they can look at it as replication because Jordan was very consciously leaning into a lot of those elements. I, I don't think it's a disservice to him to be aware of that and to talk about it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. He does his own thing with it. But in terms of the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, which owes a lot as a reaction to Tolkien, an eye of the world, which do you think is more like the Lord of the Rings? In terms of plot points, uh, you might say the eye of the world. But in terms of it being um, a, a sort of very adult, mature fantasy with a slower pace, you might mean the Thomas Covenant books. You know, it... It all depends on when we say the next Game of Thrones or the next A Song of Ice and Fire. What do we mean by that? Because what I mean by it might be it's written quite cinemagraphically, that it's a, a lot of different point of view characters. And you're going, well, I thought you meant it was going to be full of sex and violence and, and twins getting it on. <laughs> all depending on how you've characterized it. And that's why you, 
you can't blame marketing people for going, I want to suggest this is like the one that people know. One of the reasons we always keep going back to talking about Tolkien is we are almost guaranteed in a conversation about fantasy that people will be aware of Tolkien, whereas they might not be aware of Malazan. They might not be aware of uh, The Wheel of Time. They might not be aware of the Shannara books. Mm. So we, we find common denominators, but how we understand those common denominators will, again, reflect an individual experience. Yes, and this goes back to something Pierre was saying earlier about like how once a writer writes a book, it no longer belongs to them. Because for every each reader that reads that book, they are going to take different things away from it, and they are going to define it in the way that appeal to them the most. So to tell two readers of uh, the same, two different readers of the same book, that um, another book is like the book they read in common is 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 misleading. Agreed, and 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 I think you know I believe Taylor said it. One of the things you know, Taylor AP said that uh, you know I love that that are uh, we authors we're all liars and you know we're all you know I mean there there's that balance I think is an author between thinking you're too smart for your own good that you're going to outsmart the reader to you know make them believe something that that lead them give them a red herring and lead them down a certain path you know hey i admit it i've tried it as an author i i think my bullet book is full of red herrings that when you get to the end of a seven book series you're going to go i had no idea this was but that's that's my own hubris saying that right meanwhile you know people i've had readers that said oh i think this is going to happen and they've already figured it out like oh my gosh, that's really astute of you, right? And it may not be spot on, but they've captured those elements, right? And, and I think it's a fascinating uh, balance between APs and talk about expectations, you know, like uh, what you mentioned about military fantasy, you know, okay, well, if you've been in the military, especially in peacetime, most of your military experience is sitting around talking, solving stories with, with your friends and not, not hand-to-hand combat. Right, so when someone says, "Oh, it's a military fantasy," well, you know, depending on your military experience, you may have spent thirty years in the military and never seen combat. So your military experience is different from someone who's, you know, served abroad and done several tours and and is, you know, lived in in trenches. And you know what I mean? So, I I, I think yeah, expectations a lot, but also for writers, you know, we have to remember that, uh, you know, give our readers credit; they're extremely intelligent. And you know, sometimes we can we can outsmart ourselves in thinking that, you know, again, we've 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 yeah, there's no one that's gonna figure out the subplotted, you know, like, you know, but 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 uh, you know, it, that's that it, that's exactly the opposite, right? But as AP said, I think it's the, the journey. And and as you get older, um, you know, I think I think uh you have you know, I'm one of the older people in the room, you know, like Along with AB, like we, you know, as you get older, you realize more and more about just enjoying the moment because you don't know how many moments you have left, right? And and you you when you pass fifty, and you realize you have you you likely have more years behind it ahead. You start thinking more and more about you know just enjoying this chapter. Enjoy, uh, you know what? That's an interesting theory, but I just want to relax, enjoy the book, and be surprised. And later, on I find out that so and so is so and so's son or daughter, and they're the hidden heir or whatever, right? So. You know, that's that's I, I feel that that's the older I get, the more I start to read that that way. That's an interesting point you made, Pierre, because uh, Sean's 
comment AP, AP's thoughts on our expectations as readers and having issues with instant gratification has really helped me make my way through Molazen. I am about almost done with RG, which is my favorite book. And that just in just being in the moment has helped me read that series when I wasn't able to before because I was always trying to see ahead. I was always trying to look ahead and I should just be focused on on the page and what's happening in the moment. So I thought that was an interesting uh, comment there. Well, one of the predominant forms of uh, of storytelling that I think we're seeing more and more and more of because it is more accessible, it's easier for a broader audience, is a chronological sequence that's very well plotted. The narrative events are folded into each other very cleverly, and uh, there, there's meticulous craftsmanship in where the thing is going. But everything is laid out up front for the reader. So if there's magic in the world and it's in a system, the magic system is detailed and explained. And now, once you know all about the magic system, you know it's going to be a central aspect of everything that's going to happen. But so that's why it's explained first. This character is important. Let me spend 10 pages with this character because a, a lot of what we have is we want to know this I want to know. I want to be able to look it up on my phone and know who the character is. I want to be able to Google and go, oh, so that's what they look like. I want to I want to know everything up front. And because we have that technology in all other aspects of our lives, um, that's one of the things that is dominating, I think, a lot of popular fiction is get it to the reader up front. And then people go, oh, well, it was front loading everything. And again, it's you, you can't win. It, it, but then we want a sequence of events to carry us along. And you can do that a lot better uh, in some respects with a chronological sequence of events because cause and effect, it's a natural progression. It's the easy flow of time. And if you then have a flashback, well, that's a break in the narrative. You've broken up pacing. You're, you have disrupted the narrative flow. And yet we accept flashbacks all the time. We accept flash forwards slightly more rarely, but they happen. There are different ways of approaching it, but because I think there's been this movement towards simplifying certain aspects of narrative and explaining things, uh, and even if it's showing them, not telling them, if you don't want to get into that argument, but showing them up front and going, this is going to be important, big arrows, I'm going to explain this. Now that you know, let's carry on. And we accept that in written narrative, but we've seen TV shows that have done that, that have gone, right, we're now going to explore this thing. And people go, well, why did they do that? I want to know what happens next. Why did they stop the narrative flow to do that? You go, but it's a bottle episode. They've, they've done this to explore this concept because it's going to come up in season two and three and four and five. Let's just get it all out and done in one go. We have these different expectations. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And very much it's an individual preference. But chronological storytelling, a strong narrative sequence of events, front loading of information, when someone comes in giving very detailed physical, visual information about them and being very clear about their motivations, which 20 years ago we would have regarded as quite simplistic and quite reductive and but now it's considered, you know, but that's what people want. So give them what they want. And I think that is a style that's come into four across certain genres. 
Um, I'm so sorry, guys, but I got to go to work. So this has been just delightful, wonderful, and I'm I'm just going to put out a request to do this again. <laughs> but uh, thank you for having me, Steve. It's so nice to meet you, AP and Epic MPL. I'll talk to you guys soon, I'm sure. But um, yeah, thank you so much for this, everyone. Thank you for coming. Have, have, have a good shift. Loved having All right, you. Bro. Thanks. All right. See you. See you later. Bye bye now. Uh, our friend Mike from Mike's, Mike's Book Reviews. He's the reason I'm even on book two, him and Slowly Read. Mike says, great collection of readers. They've enjoyed it quite a bit. Hey, thanks for dropping by, Mike. Uh, and uh, Eric says, we've been promised the next game at Thrones for 20 years. <laughs> that is just mean. Eric, go and sit on the naughty step. <laughs> <laughs> we we were um AP we were, we've had the ongoing discussion about um you know things like a does do writers like the GRMs the Patrick Rothfuss do they owe us that next installment is it completely unfair that they're keeping us waiting so long you talked about the instant gratification uh you know a bit of that 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 thing and 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 um because of how the a TV series uh, ended for a lot of people inadequately, whether or not, you know, um, you know, that spoiled, uh, you know, the, the, the continuation of the, their actual writing for the author and things like that. And, and, uh, but, but, but Game of Thrones is unfortunately one of those uh, things now that is, 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 um, it's, it's somewhat of a microcosm of that, that, that gratification, because we want the story to finish the way we want it. We, that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted the TV show. And now that's what we wanted out of the books. But meanwhile, you're thinking, you're wondering what JRM is thinking. He's like, oh my gosh, I can never live up to the expectations of readers now because, you know, I've, I've, I've put this, the show has come out that, you know, has gone ahead of my writing and that, that people were, I found the ending unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory and then what now. But I'm interested to hear your take on, on that specifically. Well, first of all, even if, J.R.R. Martin used, uh, or sorry, uh, George R. R. Martin used exactly the same thing that happened at the end. Remember at the, the beginning we were talking about, depending on who writes it, that is going to change how you experience it. And even if exactly basically the same thing happened, how that would be communicated to the reader would be in his style, would fulfill the thing that we love about those books. So um, I, I would have no problems with that. The, the one, when people say, do authors owe us the, the next book? And I don't know about you, uh, but I have never met a single author who goes, I'm going to draw this out as long as possible. I want them on tenterhooks. Every single author I know wishes that they could get what was in their head onto the page as perfectly as possible. And if they could do it by waving a wand, they would wave that wand and have the thing appear because it's in their head and they're trying to get it out. No author I have ever met goes, nah, I just, I just can't be bothered. I, I'll get to it at some point. So I, I think that it's, it's slightly, it, sometimes how we phrase the question is actually important. And I think in this case, it, looking at it in terms of, well, what are we entitled to? Well, did you pre-order it? No. Then you're entitled to nothing. Go away. You're not part of that. 
every author wants to finish the story. Every author wants to tell their story. And life happens. Life gets in the way. Medical conditions happen. Pandemics happen. Um, our mental health happens. But sure, let's have authors just do whatever they needs to be done in order to get that into my sweaty little mitts now because they owe it to me. An author's conversation with their publisher, that's between the publisher and the author. There is a contract in place there. If anyone is going to talk about owing, it is going to be the publisher's conversation with the author. But in terms of reader, yes, we want it. And the author wants to give it to us. But for whatever variety of reason, it hasn't happened yet. And do you think asking George R. R. Martin or Patrick Rothfuss, have you done it yet, is going to have any more effect than that kid sitting in the back of the car while you're driving going, are we there yet? And you go, literally, if we were there, I would have stopped driving. If it was done, it would be published and you could buy it. <laughs> asking me, threatening me, sending abusive messages to me is not going to make me want to write anymore or any faster. I already want to write. Um, so I have enormous sympathy for authors who come under incredible pressure and scrutiny by fans who go, I want it now. You go, congratulations, I want the pony. I... I, I want a pizza. I want this thing now. Why is that pizza taking 25 minutes? I want it here in 20. Now, is it difficult to wait? Yeah, it, it is. I've wanted the next book in the King Killer, uh, King Killer Chronicles. I've wanted the next book in A Song of Ice and Fire. I really wish that there'd be an announcement tomorrow. Oh, by the way, it's just been published. It'll be available next week. That would be amazing. And I'd be incredibly happy. But just because it hasn't happened, then it doesn't give me the right to send an abusive message or to say to any of them, well, you should be writing. Oh, oh well, that's, you know, we, we've all had moments of tragedy in our lives. And someone has said to us, well, I needed you to do this thing. And you go, I'm really sorry. I, I honestly, I, I will get to it when I get to it. And we've, I think we've lost this ability to empathize with the fact that that is a human being sitting there. Yeah. And we see this in discussion of TV shows. So you don't like how so-and-so adapted the book that you love. That doesn't give you the right to be abusive. Yeah. <laughs> they, they thought, they, I, again, writers, and you know, you are creative, you write. If someone said, I want you to do this, you would do your best. No, your best mightn't match the expectations of some of the audience. Yes. But you wouldn't deliberately sabotage something. You wouldn't deliberately go, oh, well, I'm just going to be mean about this because I didn't like this book. Then you wouldn't be involved in the project. Showrunners, writers, the writer's room, they are doing their best. And we can criticize it and say we didn't enjoy it. Um, I think that could have been better. But none of that is to say, anything about their motivation going, oh, they disrespected the text. And again, it's, it's a lot about what we project onto something. Yes. And we're, we're ascribing motivation. George R. R. Martin, he should have finished. Really? Harper Lee wrote um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. 
How long did we have to wait for the next book? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's 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 um it's so funny because um you know so many people. Uh, the hardest reviews for me to digest are the ones where somebody says, "I I, I totally accept. I didn't like the character. Um, I didn't like your writing style." Um, I didn't like uh, first person. I didn't like, um, you know, too extensive world building. I didn't like your gratuitous battle scenes. I didn't like the hardest ones to address are that, well, if I would have written the book, I would have written it this way. Th those, are the, those are the ones that, that, that I, I literally sit there and go, okay. And I have to accept that because, again, the book belongs to you. You paid your hard-earned money. I appreciate you doing it. I appreciate you taking the time and, and, and the time and effort to write a review because that means the world to me and reviews are like gold because they can highlight exposures in your writing potentially make you a better writer and those are all great things right you can't be tone deaf to your readership you also have to you know write the book you want to write but yet be cognizant of you know people's criticism especially if they're consistent amongst the Lord but 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 those are the hardest reviews like I wish you would have written the book like this I wish you would have taken this and and and, and that is what I I feel so horrible about for someone like GRM is that, you know, because of the show, the show was depicted as such. Now GRM has to, well, not he has to not to do anything, but 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 he may or may not feel compelled to write something that, while essentially may have the same conclusion, but is going to be so much different, especially in terms of we all know the one character arc that he's, you know, people are wanting to see more fleshed out to make it seem more believable um, at the end, based on what the show said. And, and I, that you're right, AP. That pressure must be just because it's so hard to address those things, right? Like, but, but also, someone who says, "I wish if if you'd written it this way, it would have been better," and you go, "Well, it would have been better for you and maybe some other people, but it wouldn't necessarily have been better for those people over there because that's the thing about it that they love." And this is, this is actually, it's a, it's a really weird thing about editing. People sometimes, uh, one of the criticisms I see online about a lot of stuff is um, it needed better editing. I honestly don't know what a lot of those people think editing is, but it's, it's not what actually happens when you edit a novel <laughs> or, or even when you edit a film. But when I am editing, um, and obviously I do a lot of, what I do and like to focus on is developmental editing. That's my my preference. I don't try and get the author to write the book that I want because I'm not the author. <laughs> and if I wanted that book, I have to go off to my desk and write that book. But what I try to show is an understanding of what is on the page and how it might be interpreted and why that might be a problem or why the thing on the page is absolutely brilliant. More of this, please. This is actually really excellent the way that you do this. Oh, you subverted my expectations here. This is a slight plot hole uh, because of X, Y, and Z. Oh, you introduced this thing here. Why didn't he do that earlier? Oh, he earlier he did that thing. Why can't he do it here? And those sorts of conversations. But I never go, right, You've introduced this. You need to do this thing because that's how I would do it. Don't use that word. That that's not a good word. I prefer this word. You go, but and my brother hits that word. Like which of us are going to be your reader? You don't know. You have to write your story. 
And when it comes to criticism of, of text, it's a difficult thing to learn. There's a difference between being critical of the text and being critical of how you felt when you read it. So focusing on your reading experience. And this is a, a debate that goes round and round and round and uh, about various things. But if you focus on the text, then you're analyzing the text. And that comes with a whole toolkit of different approaches and words and terminology and the things that you want to talk about. But if you're talking about how you felt in a, you're, you're calling it a review, that's that's not necessarily a review of the book. No, you're, you're reviewing your, how you felt when you read your reading experience. You're telling people how you felt. I loved that character. Great. What does that tell me who doesn't know you? I love the way that this book made me feel. I felt great reading it. Fantastic. I'm not you. How will I feel? Whereas if someone tells me those aspects about the book, oh, it's, it's a military science fiction. It's space opera. There's a, a lot of action in it. These are all elements that the person listening to the review can take on board. But you should have done it this way. That would have made it better. Is, <laughs> is one of those things that we do reflexively when we think about what it is that we like and we universalize it. And this brings us back to that point. The norms that we have, our preferences, our cultural norms, um, the, what we assume about the world that is individual to us. We so often universalize because we think that's how everyone else thinks, feels, and, and should approach things. So when someone says, if you'd done this, it would have been better, they're universalizing their experience and thinking that all readers are going to feel that way about it, even if they're doing it unconsciously or not. So, like, um, I, I, I completely like, I, I, like, I, I love how you articulate, like, the experience of a writer in comparison to how people um, digest the, um, the knowledge, the, the, the story itself. How, how do you feel in terms of like readapt, like, with uh, adaptations? Right? Would you still like? Um, would you still um, give that like olive branch to like uh, people adapt? like the story like for instance right how did you feel about the last season you've read a song of ice and fire how did you feel um about um like uh the what what was done to daenerys's character like how how it all the execution of it itself like um like as someone who like um read because that is also a curative process and they are also going through that process of um developing things and interpreting things and trying to like uh adapt it to cinema and all of that but there are some things like when when like the essence of a character i feel sometimes and I, i'm not saying it as a criticism i understand it's subjective but the essence of a character has been bleached away a character that is beloved by like the original readers like in the case of um wheel of time like that that basically made the franchise brought, brought the franchise to a place where studios were like okay to be lucrative to adapt this as a TV, but the the, the 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 souls of those characters are now bleached. Like, how would you okay. like like in terms of criticism or in like what is a fair what is a fair way to assess that and and like the well, okay. anger that give, is felt? Yeah. Give me an example from Wheel of Time of a character that you think that they have radically changed. 
Um, sorry, could you give me one second? Someone is knocking on my door. Oh, just sure. give me one second. Yeah, one second. I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, well, we we could talk generally about adaptation is is an interesting thing because it's not any one thing. Um, and I, I think like Epic raises a brilliant point here because adaptation is is fascinating and complex. But you take something like uh, Heinlein's Starship Troopers. The politics of Heinlein's book Starship Troopers are not the yep. politics of the film Starship Troopers. Um, yeah, uh, sorry, oh, I couldn't hear you before. Sorry, what are you saying? Oh, no problem. Uh, we, we were carrying on just to talk about adaptation in general. Okay. So if, if you can think of, pick one character from Wheel of Time that you think has just been changed, that isn't the same character anymore. So for instance, um, um, Eye of the World was a coming of age story, for instance. It was a coming of age story. There were kids and everything, but then in the adaptation, they were made a lot more mature. And yeah. um, there were aspects of the, like, um, I don't know if I should spoil like the series itself, but Rand and, uh, and uh, his love interest, you know, like the, that relationship essentially, like, I feel like it was a bit like, uh, that's just one example. And I'm saying this because okay. I made a whole rant but review about it. Yeah, but okay. So let, let's let's talk about the aging up of of actors. They are young adults uh, because they're all in their very early twenties. And from my perspective, that's basically the same as fifteen because they're young. Um, now, for someone who's in their early twenties, you might be going, "Oh, well, they all look they're meant to look younger than me." And it was meant to be a coming of age narrative. But if you had put that on for a general audience as a coming of age narrative, and remember the eye of the world is told 90% from a male point of view, but none of the rest of the series is. The rest of the series is split in terms of point of view, roughly 50-50 according to gender. And the rest of the series isn't a coming of age narrative. That, that disappears out because they get to an age and it's now about them being mature adults and having relationships. So if the majority of the series is not a coming of age story. Do you, when you adapt the whole of the Wheel of Time, say, right, well, we're going to sell season one as a boy's coming of age story and get people invested in that. And then when they get to season two and it's not a boy's coming of age story, it's a radically different story that is going to uh, uh, quintuple the female presence. We're going to reduce the male presence. It's not going to be coming of age anymore. It's going to be a different thing. Are we going to have the same audience retention? Because we created an expectation about what this series is and we haven't lived up to it. Now, that's that's one aspect. The second aspect is, okay, so we'll cast a whole load of children who um, are going to be 15 and we're going to be filming this for the next eight years, which means they are going to radically change between season one being filmed and season two because that's what happens when you're 15. You grow a lot. So the actors physically are going to change. When you employ children, you have different labor laws than when you employ adults. And that's going to limit the amount of time that you can film. So that's why, if you remember back to a lot of those high school um, TV shows that used to be on TV all the time, famously Beverly Hills 90210 back in the day when everyone was basically 30 and in high school. That's where the Steve Buscemi meme comes from. The idea of these much older people playing younger people. Look at Dawson's Creek. All of these YA shows where much older actors are playing younger characters because it's expedient, it is practical, 
um, and you can work them harder and longer with like the law shutting you down. And then you look at the relationships in that uh, episode. Yeah, so they have a romantic relationship. It's not as will they, won't they, but it is a point of contention across the series and it is about his old flame. And as we were talking earlier on about a lot of fantasy novels, particularly the 90s and earlier, where people didn't really exist below the waist. They didn't do that. But for a modern audience, you're you're telling me that teenagers, even 15, 16, whatever age in these high schools, um, it's going to be easier for them to relate to these people that they're chased and will hold hands and, and look at each other? Or do you want something that is slightly more reflective of our reality and our lived experience that maybe they were messing and fooling around? but we want to deal with this sensitively. So we're not going to deal with it with teenagers. We'll age them up a little bit and people will readily identify with that and go, yeah, that's okay. So it's a slight change from the uh, superficial reality of the book, but in terms of the intentionality and the relationship, it's actually very, very similar. It's still about their relationship and love for each other and being promised to one another, but then that is broken. So that, isn't actually a massive change. I guess. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that. But thank you for that. I can't I can't argue with that. Like they're adapting it to a modern audience and everything. But uh yeah, I I just wouldn't watch uh, the the rest of the seasons. I'll just stick but, to the books. <laughs> and, and that, that point, that's I mean, fine, one, yeah. But one of the things about this is you don't have to like the changes. You don't have to like how they've adapted it. But it doesn't mean that the adaptation itself is bad. It just means that it's not your cup of tea. You wanted something that was closer to the books, that yeah. it was more a replication of the book instead of an, an adaptation of the book. Mm -hmm. Because if you think like The Handmaid's Tale is what in going into season five now. Yes. Yes. And you go, when did they start diverging from the book? Would that be episode one? But you don't have people up in arms going, they are disrespecting Margaret Atwood's brilliant text with The Handmaid's Tale. You go, no, it's a brilliant adaptation. That is now, it has a life of its own and it's amazing, but it is definitively Atwood's story and Atwood's world and what she was exploring. When we look at um, Lucifer with Tom Ellis, and that was a wildly popular show. But I don't remember that being picketed with people saying, how dare you disrespect the comics? This isn't what the, the comic did. That they had a, it was an episode uh, by episode. So episodic serial style. And then there was a meta arc that tangentially occasionally bumped into one of the storylines from the comics. But in terms of physical representation, he's, he has the wrong hair color, the wrong accent. It's in the wrong city. It's not a piano bar. It's a nightclub with a piano in it, which it's kind of similar. They changed all the characters. They gender swapped a bunch of people. They race swapped a bunch of people. But we all enjoyed it. But they turned it into a cop show. If anyone's read a Lucifer comic, it's not a cop show. Yeah. So that is adaptation. And so why is it when it comes to certain properties, they're disrespecting the source material because they deviated, they made a change. The boys, the boys on Amazon's yeah. just relaunched season three. And like ev I, almost everyone I talk to loves the boys as a, a brilliant deconstruction of, of superheroes and it's over the top and it's violent and it, it's incredibly well written. If you've read the, the comic books, 
well it has a passing similarity to the comic books um but again we don't we don't complain about that going how dare they they're disrespecting the text or they didn't stick closely enough to it oh sorry i i, I go on rants i do apologize no, like i totally understand and thank you so much for that explanation like <laughs> i i would i would definitely give it more thoughts when I'm making rant reviews for sure. <laughs> but um, I'm so I cannot wait to read A Drowned Kingdom and uh, I'm oh, going to definitely change like your channel, like AP, like 100% because there's so much I feel like I can learn from the way you 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 articulate yourself in when it comes to writing narrative dialogues. What before this started, I was watching that one on dialogue as well and I was really enjoying that. But I have to go like right now so yeah. thank you so much. I really enjoyed this experience. I'm better for it. Um, have a wonderful day. Stay Take epic. Care, yeah. Pleasure yeah. meeting you. Bye bye. Take care. Pleasure meeting you as well. Bye. Hey, okay. Peter, uh, thanks for staying and play with us. <laughs> no but, but one last thing. I will absolutely support and defend 100% Epic's right to not like the Wheel of Time adaptation, to not enjoy it, to to think that these were the wrong changes to make, because he's right from his point of view they that wasn't what he wanted and mm -hmm. it is absolutely 100 percent fine to have that opinion yeah. I, but I, yeah i think there's an innate sorry i didn't mean to cut you off i know we have to go because we're running uh, running quite a bit of time we could talk forever i'm sure but i think there's an, an innate desire in many of us um for something to be canon for material that is canon to stick as close especially if it's written in a book and a very popular book that when the when this when it's adapted to the bigger small screen, that it has to be essentially as close as possible within reason to match, which we know is 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 impossible. It is impossible for budgetary reasons. It's possible for time reasons. It's impossible for for so many reasons that. But I think you know just quickly back to the Game Throne model that you know people felt that because uh, the writers were going off the source material so much more closely in the first few seasons and because you had those first few books and then of course once GRM had, had the, the the shows when I had the books that and they were relying on simply notes for GRM but not the actual books haven't been written that that became such an issue but if you think about it that was unavoidable because the books weren't written right so you know it, it, but anyways that's just just the, the point and, but that's that's a fascinating point about the, the idea of canon and the idea of lore. We, we see this a lot in Star Wars. We see it a lot in, in comic books. But let, let's think about uh, all of the, the superhero movies that we've seen. How many different Batman films have there been? And how many change have they, uh, how many times have they changed Batman canon, Batman lore? That, oh, um, who killed Bruce Wayne's parents? Well, it was Jack Napier who became the Joker, or it was Joe Chill, or it was... They change things because it's an adaptation. It's not the source material, but we have an expectation. We want it to be recognizable or in some way related to the thing that we love. But when it comes to, say, Star Wars, uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show was just launched. And some people are going, oh, but this has changed from the Clone Wars, the cartoon. And you're like, well, when did the Clone Wars establish canon for the Star Wars universe? Oh, well, then they changed those books. Those books are no longer canon, but these books are. And you go, George Lucas changed the canon of Star Wars between Star Wars A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. 
I'll remind you, Luke and Leia did not start out as brother yes, and sister. Exactly, exactly. Vader did not start out as Darth being a title. That was his first name. That um, even the idea of Darth Vader being Luke's father wasn't the original genesis of the idea. Now, we, we talk about retrospective continuity, retconning things, creating the idea of cohesion. And it makes it suits that pattern need that we have in our brains that it all, it's all neat, it all fits. But does it really matter that Luke and Leia went from being brother or being sort of prince and princess love interest to brother and sister by the end of it, even though it was clearly never intended from the beginning? Yes. Yes. But it went that way because Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher had much better chemistry than Mark Hamill and, and Carrie Fisher did on screen. But it, it, whatever, or maybe they felt it would just make it more interesting. Mm -hmm. But those things happened, those changes were made. And we don't get bent out of shape about it. We just you go, okay, so it's slightly internally inconsistent. Is it radically inconsistent? No. So why does it need to be absolutely faithful? Why does everything need to be nailed down? And I think, weirdly enough, this is a legacy of Tolkien. Yes. Tolkien created such a meticulous history and world that there are inconsistencies in it. And there were things he changed his mind on and tweaked them over time. But that became a blueprint almost for how we're meant to think about it, how we're meant to interact with it, how we're meant to consider it. Like the idea of the Rings of Power TV show conflating thousands of years into a much smaller time period, but everyone is aghast. You go, but what's the big deal? We do that all the time. Like you read the Iliad and you go, oh, I read the, how long did the Battle of Troy take? Oh, well, it took about a weekend according to the Iliad. And then who founded Rome? Oh, well, it was Aeneas, according to the Aeneid, or Romulus and Remus. Well, that's inconsistent. Has anyone considered the lore? What's the canonical answer? And you go, it, history is inconsistent. Life is inconsistent. And we accept these things in story because the story is the thing that we're meant to be interested in rather than this meticulous encyclopedic knowledge of a world. Yeah, you're so right. And it, and it's almost like saying, you know, you look at the Lord of the Rings movies, which I love, and, I, and I'm and i a huge Tolkien fan. But, you know, one of my favorite characters in terms of the relatively minor character doesn't appear until until The Return of the King, Imrahal of Dal Amroth. Well, he's totally written out of, of for, for obvious reasons, from, from The Return of the King movies. But is that going to spoil my enjoyment of, am I going to let that spoil my enjoyment of, I, of, of Return of the King? Because he is integral in some ways to the, See, the plot of the third book. However, I, I like to think that he and Glorfindel are sitting out uh, in the back of one of the trailers <laughs> on the movie set going, no, we're on strike. And they're, they're sitting there and they're having a great time. Anytime there's an adaptation of the Fellowship uh, of the Ring, be it Rankin Bass, actually, I'm not even, I can't remember the Rankin Bass one, but in Bakshi or Jackson, Glorfindel erasure, I will not stand for it. Um, you know these things like Tom Bombadil being a oh, the 17 yes. years at the start of the Fellowship of the Ring in the Shire gets conflated to what like a summer yeah like, summer basically uh, the, we conflate time in stories all the time in adaptation we we change things around they, but, uh, 
the journey through the, the forest, Old Man Willow, Tom Bombadil, the Barrow Downs, where the hobbits get their swords. You know, and then you have the extended edition scene where Aragorn just happened to be walking around. <laughs> just so he could arm the hobbits in a marsh. Like, and you know why that scene was excised? Because you looked at it and went, that makes no sense. Yeah, no That's sense. dumb. Yeah. Why would he have it? The, all of the scenes in Brie, a lot of that was condensed. Like, so much of it changed. And you don't, and because fans loved and enjoyed the film, they, they don't go, oh, but this was inaccurate. They changed huge yes. chunks of it. Yes. And yet we love the film. Yeah, but it's not, it is, it is not as accurate as people think. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the big things is translating a novel to a film. You're going from a self-contained narrative unit, a novel, into a self-contained narrative unit, a film. It's the same as going from one story and putting it as a TV episode. It's a one-to-one -one because there's a beginning, middle, and end, if you want to you know, be that sort of simple and straightforward. Going from one novel to a TV show made of multiple episodes, you go, ooh, different structure. So uh, it's going to start at the start and end at the end, but this is made up of X number of chapters. That doesn't match the number of episodes. It's not divisible yeah. by the number of episodes we need a mid-season finale and they there isn't that in the book and um, we need a bottle episode because the actors needed time off to do this thing we need to cover this uh, that's going to require a second unit to film all of that stuff why don't we move that thing to here and uh, we'll get rid of that thing we'll do and suddenly when you're going from one type of narrative one a novel into tv show multiple episodes that's a very significant structural change. And there are different ways to do it. But it, it isn't the same as book to film. And that I think people overlook that one as well as a very simple, straightforward one that it, it's not necessarily as neat. Yeah, very true. Uh, AP, thanks for staying up. I know it's late for you. Thanks for staying up. Oh, oh my God. Sorry, AP, to keep you up. Anytime you want to come by, let, just let us know. You're welcome anytime to come in. And uh, we'd love to hear your rants. Well, I, I just want to say thank you very much. And I am so, 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 I feel like I've been talking over people and talking far too much and not letting anyone else talk. Oh, and I feel really, really bad about that. But <laughs> I, I wanted to thank you for the invitation. I wanted to thank you for the brilliant conversation. I have had so much fun mm -hmm. and it has been absolutely wonderful. So thank you very much for, for organizing this and putting up with me. Yeah, no, of course. You're a guest, so we wanted to pick your brain. That was the whole point. So, but anytime you, you'd like to come by, it's you're always welcome. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, uh, thanks everyone for coming by to chat with us, and hope everyone has a great weekend. <laughs>